All right, well, I'd like to call the meeting to order. Um, first of all, I would like to welcome um, the new members, right? Um, Jonathan, oh, so this is last minute, so I'm sorry, I'm looking at. Here we go. Thank you, Larry. I was, I was looking at the last minutes. Um, so I'd like to uh, welcome the new committee members. So we have, um, I've forgotten your first name. Robert. Robert, Robert um, want to say anything? Yeah, tell us, tell us a little bit about you. Does the light go on? Yep, you're good. Oh, it was on. Push it again. There you go. Oh, turn it off again. Turn it off again. <laughs> Look at the side of it. Look at the side. And you'll see it come on. Yeah. There, there you go. go. <laughs> so my name is Robert Steinberg. I've been a resident in Marin County for 12, 14 years. Resided in Stinson Beach, Point Ray Station, now in Marshall, California. Um, have been a beneficiary of many of the uh, services that measure a funds, such as parks and recreation, um, and appreciate it, has enhanced my life. So this is a way for me to sort of give back to those enhancements. Um, Skills-wise, uh, I'm well-trained as a lawyer, although I don't practice now. Graduate degree in philosophy. And these is lucky enough to have good education allows me to learn what I need to learn. Uh, so currently I help people with their wealth management, which brings me into daily um, daily questions about numbers and the allocation of resources. I'm welcome, and I'm sure you'll have a chance to look at budgets and review a lot of our audits and get to understand. I think that's what the committee is here to look at those things and make sure that as a as a community member that we're overlooking these things in the way that you would like to, especially in fiduciary ways. So, and then the other new member is Jonathan. You want to introduce yourself? Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Jonathan Cathrine. Um, I grew up in Marin and live here now with my four kids my and my wife in Mill Valley. Um, I'm just pleased to be here providing some civic duty and um, being involved in the community. I love what we have here in Marin County with the parks, the open space, the agriculture, and I'm just here to help. Thank you. Well, welcome and thank you for making a difference. Okay, so the first thing we need to do as action item is to approve the minutes from the February 10th meeting. So can I have a motion to approve those? So moved. Go ahead. So moved. Okay, so we'll give Larry um, will be first and okay. All right, Dan, what? You gotta call for a public comment before you approve them. Before the approval, okay. Yeah. Is there any public comment on the meetings? I'm in the, I'm sorry, on the minutes from the last meeting. And, and sure. there's none in the field and there's none online. So you can ask Alice or anybody. Anybody out there? 
online, Al. Chair Madeline, there are no speakers in the queue, sir. There's no speakers in the queue, he's saying. Yeah, there are no speakers in the queue. Nobody in the ether. Okay, well, I'm reading the teleprompter saying that, so. Okay, thank you. All right, so with that, um, now we get to have the motion, right? Yep. Okay, so Larry is the first and Dan is second. All those in favor of approving the minutes? Aye. Aye. Anybody disapproving? Okay. So those have been approved. Now, time for public comment. So do we have anybody in the audience that would like to make a public comment? And this, Al, do we have anybody um, online that would like to make a public comment? Chair Malin, there are no speakers in the queue. And this is for items that are not on the agenda. Not exactly, items not on the agenda. Nope. Okay, great. And it sounds like you'd already addressed the other Thing that we talked about earlier today. Okay. All right. Well, so next is really the director's uh, report, which is an informational item. Thank you, committee members, uh, Max Court and Director of Marin County Parks. And I just have three quick things, uh, quick informational items. So one is recognizing that two days ago was the 50th anniversary of the Marin County Open Space District um, that was formed in 1972. And uh, as to celebrate the anniversary, we've had a series of events that are on our uh, online calendar that folks can participate in. And we also have a community challenge. So if you go to our website or you can do, there's also, um, we've uh, posted this on our social media, different social media feeds. Uh, you can take a quiz to, to win a uh, water bottle, Marine County Parks refillable water bottle. And then there's a series of challenges going to an event doing volunteer work, a variety of ways to get engaged. And uh, each step, you earn a sticker by going to those different kinds of events. And then you can fill your water bottle, cover it with uh, cool Marin County Park stickers. So, um, you know, it's uh, we've been trying to find more ways to get people involved and young people engaged in, uh, in our parks and open spaces. So uh, this is just, just one way we're doing that. Uh, another thing I wanted to announce, some really exciting news uh, in the election on Tuesday, voters in Tiburon and Belvedere overwhelmingly voted to approve Measure M. I think it got 79% of the vote, and that is uh, to pass a bond measure that would raise $18 million towards the acquisition of the Martha property, which would be a new open space or addition to the existing Old St. Hillary's Open Space Preserve. Um, it's been a long community priority. The board of directors allocated $6 million from Measure A towards that potential purpose. And uh, the next step is uh, the Trust for Public Land is tasked with raising additional $16 million to get to the full uh, purchase price. So uh, fingers crossed, but uh, so far that's a really important step um, and exciting to see that public support. Last thing I'd like to announce is we had a really great um, meeting from our One TAM partnership, which is a partnership between National Park Service, State Parks, Marin Water, and Marin County Parks with uh, Golden Gate National Parks Conservancy as the nonprofit in the center. And that was a report on what we call peak health, which is 
uh, sort of all of our folks that work around uh, science and, and biology getting together to report on the health of the ecosystems on Mount Tam. So it was a really neat event with uh, quick seven minute uh, presentations. I think we had 150 people uh, attend uh, and, and just the report itself is online on the OneTam uh, website. It's uh, check it out. Um, but, you know, I, I think overall, a lot of really neat stories actually about how um, different sort of key species are thriving on Mount Tam. And, uh, and that concludes my report. Okay, do we have any questions from any of the commissioners? Question? I always have a question, sorry. Go ahead. So I'm just, I'm curious about the Tiburon um, Martha property. So who ends up owning it once it's changed um, title, so to speak? So it, it would be owned by the Marin County Open Space District. So I see. If, if we're able to raise all the money to acquire it. Yeah, I see. And it would just be combined with the rest of the par parcel that's up there. And how many acres are you talking about? About 100 acres. 100 acres. Or, and how yeah. many acres? We must have, what, 1,000 acres up there now? A couple In thousand. the existing old St. Hillary's? Yeah. I don't think it's quite a thousand. Yeah. I'm not sure how big, maybe 400 acres. Or I don't know how big that preserve is, but it's, it's not that big. Okay. I wasn't sure who, who ends up owning it at the end. That's my only question. Okay. So next we want to open it up to, we have any questions from the public? Um, doesn't look like we have anybody in the audience uh, that I recognize. And is Al's or anybody out there in the cyber vapors? Chair Malin, yes, we do have um, Nina Sita, who intended to speak during public comment, but unfortunately, we're having an audio Looks issue. like we do have a speaker. Okay. Yes. Is it Nina? Oh, there we go. Hello. Uh, I hope you can hear me. Nina, please hold on. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, it's very loud. Wow. Nina, please proceed. Okay. How does this sound? Is this better? No. No? Is it super loud? There we go. That's, that's there good. We go. That's good. Oh, okay. Uh, thank you for your patience um, and uh, fine-tuning this. I'm so glad I was able to type quickly enough to alert you to this problem. Uh, a concern I have under public comment as we look at Measure A and oversight moving forward is how an important category of users doesn't seem to be appropriately, in my opinion, accommodated. And these are folks who've acquired dogs during COVID or they've had them all along and they know what to do. And it's my opinion and my experience that there's a deliberate punitive law enforcement presence that tickets and punishes well-meaning people when the trails are not set up to accommodate this important user group, people who walk. Now, we've done an awful lot for the mountain bike community, and God love them. They've opened up our hills for everyone's enjoyment, and particularly youngsters. But the actual living creatures, humans and canids, dogs, coyotes, who whose feet, living, breathing feet, deserve to be on the ground, are being um, consigned to a, a life 
that's not normal. And if Measure A and parks and recreation and our rangers and our naturalists don't get it, then what are we doing? I've disappointed as well by the lack of leadership on the part of the Marine Humane Society, who should know better. Thank you very much. Chair Malin, there are no additional speakers in the queue. Okay, thank you very much. And thank you very much for your public comment, Nina. Um, is there a certain way that we should respond to it or we just make sure it's noted and that- um, comment, noted. comment noted, yeah. Um, I just follow up for Nina. I feel free to get in touch with myself or John Campo, who's actually gonna pre present later on our trail uh, improvements, but happy to talk to you. And of course, really important for us to connect with all the visitors to our parks and preserves. So our contact info is on the website and hope, hopefully we can talk more. Okay, thank you very much. I'm always glad to hear people um, chiming in. It's, it's good to hear. We wanna encourage more of that. So thank you for taking the time and effort and I'm sure that it was challenging, but hopefully the, it'll be rewarded for it. Okay, so that was all for the public comment. Um, the next item, I guess, is an action item, and that is the election of officers. All right. So just, just as a brief introduction, uh, I know we have got a couple new committee members uh, this, this year, uh, and I believe um, committee member Lown, you joined last spring. So this will be your first uh, round of uh, appointment of officers. So um, this committee has, uh, by, per the bylaws, two uh, appointed um, officers, chair and vice chair. Um, these positions are served as one-year terms, and uh, you can serve in the same position for no more than two consecutive terms. Uh, and last year, this meeting, the officers that we uh, that your committee selected was uh, Michael, committee member Michael Dybeck as chair, and vice chair was uh, Joe Malin. Uh, Mr. Dybeck's term had termed out, and Mr. Malin subsequently. Uh, carried the reins forward for this meeting, which is where we're at today. So um, with that being said, we are looking to you um, for um, a, a slate of, of candidates and a subsequent vote to fill those two officer vacancies. So uh, everybody's available, everything's on the table. There's nobody who's terming out or anybody meeting that criteria. So it's up to you all. Happy to answer any questions. If I may ask the, yeah. the, the chair, um, do we have an opening for one of the positions? Uh, I understand that there's a chair for this meeting. Do we have, um, but, but if essentially we have two openings. I yes, guess. both both positions, both the chair and the vice chair are open. Correct, and and commissioner, uh, committee member Malin uh -huh. is concluding his term as vice chair. Uh, he's acting as the chair today because the uh, preceding, uh, chair has termed out and is no longer on the committee. So sure. meaning we are looking for a chair and a vice chair to serve in a one-year term. I nominate Joe Mahillan for chair. I, I'm fine with being chair as long as anybody else who wants to be chair. I don't need to be chair, but if nobody else wants to be chair, I'd be glad to continue <laughs> to be chair. So I'm um, I'll second that if we're not too um, if we're not too uh, early in the process. I'll second um, Joe as being chair. Okay. So I'm hearing a, a motion from uh, committee member Kennings that uh, for for committee member Malin to serve as the chair, seconded by uh, Mr. Catherine. Thank you. So you probably want to okay, call. So her. we'd like to take a vote on that. 
Do we need to vote? Is that correct? Yeah. Yes, an action item. You might okay. you might want to get a full slate. So you might you need a vice chair yes. also. So, so the next might... item is do we we need to have a vice chair. And I was going to approach you, Jonathan, about it. I was if you're interested or if anybody else is interested. Do you have any interest in, in being uh, vice chair? At this point, I don't know enough. Okay. Okay. Well, and I know Jonathan probably oh, yeah, feels the same way, but I'd be glad to talk with you and I'm sure Chris and when um, Kevin gets back. There's plenty of hand holding, so there's not difficult. Could staff give a brief summary of what vice chair? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So the duties of the vice chair uh, are in the event uh, of the absence or disability of the chair or a vacancy in the office of the chair, which is what happened this year, shall assume and perform the duties of the presiding officer. So basically, you're there in the event that the chair is not there to uh, fulfill the duty. So uh, and ultimately, the duty of the, the chair, I'm happy to read through that as well, per the bylaws. Uh, to the chair preside shall preside at all meetings, appoint ad hoc committees, authorize calls for any special meetings, and generally perform the duties and functions of the presiding officer. The chair shall be an ex officio member of ad hoc committees. So that's the, basically the description of the, the chair. We're talking about two meetings per year, one in November, one in February. Um, uh, and basically, you're kind of leading the way. We staff will reach out to the chair uh prior to the meeting and as far as the agenda setting um and make sure that everybody's on the same page going into that meeting um so certainly there's a lot of support i think it would be great to to get a new member kind of in the wings and get that experience and prepare for change in leadership when the time's appropriate i agree i'd be happy to do it unless somebody else is interested okay i think <laughs> sounds like we have enough volunteers and everyone's comfortable that we could take a vote on this. And so that sounds like just to repeat the motion is that uh, Larry first and Dave second, that uh, myself become the chair and Jonathan become the vice chair. Just call for public comment before you vote. Is there any public comment in any, Al, is there any public comment? Chair Malin, there are no speakers in the queue. Okay, great. So with that, I guess we can go ahead and have a vote. All in favor? Aye. Aye. Anyone opposed? Okay. Sounds like we've got that housekeeping in place. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. Great. I don't know about that. <laughs> okay. Okay, great. Um, then the next is the voter approved changes in the re-implementation of Measure A. Um, so first of all, I want to say personally, congratulations to all those who put their efforts into this. This is a great moment for all of us to get this extension. Um, I, I'm, I'm so happy for the impact that it has on our community and everyone throughout. So, uh, you know, it took a it took a community to get this passed, and now it's going to be a community that's going to get the benefit. So I'm very excited about that. Um, okay, so is that something you're going to do, Chris? Max, okay. I'll walk you through it. Thanks, Chair Malin uh, and committee members. Again, Max Corton, Director of Marin County Parks. And we got a, um, some slides here. You can bring them up. So um, I'm just going to go over really quick, uh, go back over the process. Oh, here we go. Of how we developed the expenditure plan, the updated expenditure plan, and then what the changes are uh, for the measure. So uh, as you remember, uh, back in uh, June of last year, um, there was Marin Open Space Trust did a poll and found really strong support for extending Measure A. 
Uh, and the Board of Supervisors directed our staff to work on extending the measure. We launched a survey and um, got a really good response from the community, lots of input about what they liked about the measure, things they thought could change. We also knew that there were some folks who were not able to participate in the survey. And so I reached out along with Kevin Wright from our team and met with 45 different stakeholder groups, you know, especially trying to target um, underserved groups or folks in the community who, who might be less likely to engage in the survey to get a full sense of priorities um, from community members. And we documented those. We presented the survey results and the stakeholder engagement to our Parks and Space Commission and to the Board of Supervisors. Um, and then we took that information and came up with uh, sort of a first draft of some potential changes. We presented that to our commission and then again to the uh, Board of Supervisors and got additional feedback um, from the commission members, the public and the supervisors. And then we made additional changes and did another presentation. Uh, and then in January of this year, the Parks and Space Commission recommended the expenditure plan to the Board of Supervisors. The Board of Supervisors uh, conducted initial hearing, um, I think actually made uh, some changes, uh, and then we came back again and then uh, conducted a final hearing to put the uh, ordinance, the expenditure plan uh, on the ballot uh, in June. And then on June 7th, uh, voters voted and passed uh, the extension of Measure A, and that measure actually just took effect in October. And we, um, another just thing to point out in the timeline, we, we brought, usually bring our budget to the board in June. We had to come back uh, last month to update the budget based on the election. So going over the allocations in the measure, so 65% of uh, the old measure A and the new measure A come to Marin County parks and open space. 15% uh, goes cities and towns for park and open space uses and 20% goes to sustainable agriculture. Um, one thing to highlight, uh, the old measure and the new measure have a 5% cap on administrative costs. They both call for a community oversight committee, which is yourselves. Uh, and they also both call for annual independent financial audits, which we'll hear more about today. Um, so this, this part of the, so 65% of the measure comes to Marin County Parks and Open Space. Um, and of that 65%, 65% is for park facilities, maintenance, improvements, restoration, public engagement, all the things that we do. 25%, uh, one new thing is there's a new 25% allocation that's specifically for fire fuel reduction work, which as you all know is really important because we manage so much of the wildland urban interface around the county. We have 3,500 homes that back up against uh, our open space preserves. And then the land acquisition component of it was reduced from 20% to 10% in this new measure. Uh, the sustainable agriculture part of the measure, 20%, the old version, 95% of that 20% was for uh, grants to preserve agricultural lands and conservation easements. Uh, that's been changed. So now 50% of the um, of this 20% goes to grants for easements. 
Uh, 20% of the 20% is in matching grants to the RCD, the Resource Conservation District, for restoration work on ag lands. And then 30% is in a grant program that's really focused on uh, a variety of things, uh, sort of equity-focused work around community gardens and access to, to farming and gardening and food, uh, and then also on uh, 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 work to reduce the carbon impact uh, of, of farming and restore uh, ag land as well. And we'll have, we're gonna be presenting in the coming months to our Parks and Open Space Commission as we sort of develop that program. And we're working in close partnership with the UC Cooperative Extension and our local ag commissioner on that. And then lastly, the cities, towns, and special districts component basically remain the same at 15% and still supports the same uses. Uh, we also, I think, attach that, that letter is attached to this. This item, is that right? Uh, it's in the, it's in the yeah. Back, yeah. So there's also a letter attached to in your packet to this item that's clarifying. You know, one thing that's sort of unique is we have some funds that have rolled forward from the initial measure, and the new measure called out that the new uh, rules of the measure would apply to the old funds that would roll over, um, and so they'll remain in the way that they were allocated when we received the revenue, like into those same buckets, but. Some of those funding buckets have new rules. For instance, the resource conservation district funding in the old measure had to be used only on uh, properties that were protected by conservation easements. The new rules allows it to be used on any ag property. It doesn't have to be protected by an easement. Um, another new sort of rule change is that the, uh, the acquisition funds can also fund uh, capital improvements on lands that were acquired through that funding. So, you know, as an example, sometimes we acquire lands that have landslides, you know, active sort of landslides on them that need to be addressed with some kind of um, retaining structure or something like that to make it safe. So this allows us to do that as part of the acquisition. Um, and so that concludes my presentation. Do we have any questions from any of the commissioners? I have a question. Please, please. So I understand what agriculture is. How is agriculture different from sustainable agriculture? Could you define sustainable agriculture? Well, I think as it's described here, so 20, that 20% 20 is for sustainable agriculture. I think we see it as a very broad, um, a description of the variety of programs that are funded by that 20%. So the, the sustainable agriculture program funds, uh, you know, preserving farmland uh, for, for agriculture through easements. It describes the RCD work around restoring farmland and also access to community gardens and other um, agriculture for folks that might not have access otherwise. So, Max, that's clear. Why sustainable? Why, Why do you use the modifier sustainable for agriculture? Doesn't that complicate the, uh, the issue? Uh, so the wording was developed through that long process of engagement with the community. Um, you know, that was one of the words that we heard describing the variety of programs 
that came up as we met with people and we heard from the community through comments to our commission, to the board of supervisors and others. We heard that for them, that really described that work. Additionally, from our local, you know, ag commissioner and cooperative extension, other folks within the county who did that work. It, calling it sustainable agriculture is just the name for that broad category. Um, the actual things that are funded by it are defined within the expenditure plan more specifically, if that's helpful. Thank you. Okay. Any other questions? I have a question. Please I, go ahead, David. I don't want to field some. I have some thoughts about what we're talking about here, and I just want who I address those to. I don't. I don't think this is the forum to do it in. So I because I could. It's just going to go on and on. But um, who would I? Can I just? Can I call you, Max or you can, Chris? Dan, you can call on the phone, and this is my thought, and you, I get the pushback, and we're not, you know, and you can tell me that you, this is what you can do, Dan, or this is what we are doing, you know, plan. You can call or email us anytime, but you're also welcome to ask questions here. So, yeah, but I'll, I'll keep my thoughts right now to myself, okay? But I, I will call you guys. Okay, Dan. Okay, is your microphone on? No, no, his is it isn't. Oh. It's okay. I'm done. <laughs> well, well, I think it's I think it's important that everybody participate in this, and I think that if you have comments or questions, it's important that well, it, 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 gets, it just gets okay. I'll, I'll I'll leave one out for you. Hey, turn on your microphone, please. No, 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 it's no, down no. at the bottom right here. There you go. You're good. You're good. Okay. I keep seeing about you know we're doing fire prevention, right? And basically, I see where we're just taking and scraping everything off off the ground and and that's desertification okay that's with nothing's growing there that's a desert and the desert produces nothing okay and we're not looking at other ways to do that you could plant uh buffalo grass there and mainly we're talking about grasses here you could bust buffalo grass there it only grows about this high very dense got rhizomes that grow and it goes down about four or five feet and anchors the soil Okay, and so that's the kind of thing that I'm talking about that we should be thinking about, because if you keep doing this on a large enough scale, you're actually increasing the heat in the environment because that's what deserts do. I yeah, think, I think there's a, a process that allows you to express that and, and have some say in that. matter. Well, and I just mentioned two things. So one, there's a really cool presentation. It's item nine about our forest health work. And another one is an item 10 we're going to present on our fuels reduction work. And I think you'll be uh, impressed with the, the work that our team's doing. It never looks like a desert. None of our fuels work looks like scraping the land clear of vegetation. It's, it's usually trying to replicate the type of uh, environment that was here naturally when there was more reoccurring fire, but yeah. And that's my point. What's natural is foxtails. It grows this high. You know, it's a tremendous fuel fuel source and everything. And then when you take a look at that, something like buffalo grass, it's only growing this high. And you know, it it it's oh, and these are uh, buffalo grass, blue gamma. They're both uh, very water conscious plants and everything in that. So you know, I I don't think that you know we we keep talking about the natural things that grow here and everything in that. 
but I don't want to be growing foxtails. Right. Is there is there a, a way or a platform that he can express his and concerns or be able to have an impact on this? Yeah, sure. And we can, so Dan, uh, Jim Chaka is here, just going to present on our fuels reduction work and he helps to manage the, our, all of our, sort of our approach to fuels reduction. So does Sarah Minnick, who's our fire ecologist. So we can have, connect you with them and we can explore that more deeply. Yeah, we need to chat. That's all. Yeah, sure. And then I, it's, it isn't my way. It's, it's just, I've expressed some ideas. Maybe you haven't thought about it. Maybe you've considered it already and been down this road. You know, it's that sort of thing. And that's why I don't want to waste time here. I appreciate it. Great. Well, as always, I know we're on we're on somewhat of a time limit, but I did have some questions too. Uh, I'm kicking something down here. Um, so of the three different categories, the first one, the Marin County Parks Open Space is 65%. On that, you mentioned the one thing that changed was the amount that we reduced the land acquisition to 10%. What was it before? It was 20% before. 20%. But of the, so 20% of that 65% went to land acquisition. Now only 10% goes to it. And that other 10% goes towards just the fuel reduction and the maintenance. Right. Okay. And then on the sustainable agriculture, the 20% or what we listed as sustainable agriculture, it, what changed on that was 50% conservation easements. You said that that changed. Yeah, so it used to be 95% was grants for conservation easements uh -huh. and 5% went to the Resource Conservation District for stewardship. Okay. So now it's 50% goes to grants for conservation easements. 20% goes to the Resource Conservation District for stewardship. And 30% is in this sort of broad grant program that we're still working to to define how it'll be rolled out okay so this is kind of in response to a lot of the feedback we got on the malt and all that kind of stuff so that's really yeah. we're we're funding those we have enough properties and we need to take care of more of them than buying more yeah it's just yeah. exact being through that whole long process being responsive to what we we're hearing and yes so yeah perfect perfect what I'm really trying to get to at is what what was different from this measure from the last one so as we oversee site we should be looking at these key things. And I wanna make sure there's no confusion about what we thought were the parameters last time. And I think it's important that we know what the new parameters are. Yeah, it's really important to call out. I think one of the things that's different for us, that's really important in terms of oversight is that new fuels reduction piece, that 25%, it's very specific. It's only for actual work done. So you know, it can include planning or, um, any of those aspects of the fuels reduction. So one thing that Chris and our team have really worked on is creating a new program area in our financial software to make sure that we're tracking funds for that, you know, separately from everything else. And so do we have someone in the department that just focuses on that only? Um, like so subdivision or something? Yes. Yeah, huh? So we have, I mean, the, there's the financial piece that we're tracking separately, but we actually have quite a few people who help to manage that work. Uh -huh. Of course, their funding doesn't come out of that 25% because it can only be boots on the ground doing the work. But uh, there's a whole team, Jim Chaka, who's our, one of our superintendents, part of his work is managing contracts and our sort of relationship with the fire departments. Sarah Minnick, who's our fire ecologist, really sort of holds the science and our approach to balancing natural resource protection and, and reducing fire risk. Um, and then we have 
uh, one natural resource specialist, uh, Nate Clark, who's, uh, you know, kind of our boots on the ground with the crews who are out there who are making sure that, again, we're balancing protecting natural resources and protecting communities. And we're going to hire another natural resource specialist to also so that we can expand our capacity to do that work. So if you know anybody, uh, tell them we're hiring. Okay. Well, I think the, the main thing is, is for our, our oversight, I want to make sure that everyone's clear on how this is, where the money goes, and how we're supposed to make sure that they're staying in the right silos, and what how this, some of these silos change sizes, and just want to make sure that we're clear on that. So. There are any so we're done with the comments from the commission. So now we ask for any public comment. Is that uh, we need? It's an informational item, so still still opportunity for public comment. Yeah. So if so, there's nobody out in the audience here. And is there anybody in the cyber world, Al? Yes, we do have Nina and Sito. Please unmute. Yeah. Right. Oh, we do have a okay. Yes, Hello. you have Hi. someone. Nina. Hello. Hello. Yeah, Nina, stand by. There may be an issue with audio. Can you hear us in the so chamber? I guess go ahead and speak, Nina. You have I can a, hear you. Yeah, they can hear us, comments. Nina. Please, please stand by. Can you hear us? I can hear you and I'll observe. It's distressing. Yes. It's, it's uh, disappointing that the audio is the difficulty. Technical glitch. Yeah, Nina. No. Nina, please stand there. by. There you go. How are we? Go ahead. How frustrating to not be able to contribute when so many stakeholders have already populated data fields with their opinions. I am disturbed by um, the wildfire mandate when and funding when resource management might suggest other practices. Uh, it it seems like we're not seeing the big picture. And if in fact we have something more complicated, a different scenario going on around fuels management and wildfire hazard and the WUI interface, then let's speak candidly about it. But uh, to fold that into your broad mandate of parks, recreation and wildland uh, preserve, this is a, these are preserves. You make such a big deal about preserves, what's being preserved by this aggressive landscape management. I challenge you with your so-called authorities, your botanists, your biologies to address those points. Thank you. Thank you for your public comment. Chair Mayland, there are no additional speakers in the queue. Great, thank you. Okay, well, looks like we can move on to the next item, uh, which is all, as an action item. Um, so we're going to talk about the subrecipient audit, and uh, Chris is going to take that. Yeah, I'll introduce it. And actually, um, we are really lucky today because uh, Mina Martinovich, who's our new uh, director of the Department of Finance for the county, is here to present on this. I don't think we've ever had the director uh, come present. So um, this is a really great opportunity. And Mina's uh, just uh, new to this position. So congratulations to her on this. She's worked for a long time in the Department of Finance, but was recently uh -huh. promoted. And um, we have two kinds of audits. There's an independent uh, audit and then the subrecipient audit that's done by the Department of Finance. And so I'll hand it over to Mina to present about this. Thank you, Max. Am I on? Yes, I am. 
Good afternoon, committee members. My name is Lena Martinovich. I'm the director of finance for the County of Marin. And one of my units that I oversee is our internal audit division. It's a small but mighty team uh, tasked with reviewing the subrecipient component of Measure A uh, tax revenues and it how they flow into meeting the expenditure plan requirements. Um, since the measure's inception effective date, um, our audit team has been responsible for reviewing on an annual basis the uh, total measure A tax revenues and its awarding to subrecipients through its grant programs. So this includes the farmland preservation, cities, towns, special districts, and then the community grant projects. Um, we review not only the awards that are made to these subrecipients, but also how they spent those funds to ensure that they were in compliance with the specific provisions that are laid out within the expenditure plan. Um, so I'm here to present the results for our fiscal year 2021. So I'd like to first start um, by apologizing to the committee members, we noticed a typo on the very first page of listing out in our attempts to uh, encapsulate the new committee members. Uh, I noticed that we have a bit of a typo. So we will be revising this page to ensure that everyone's names are listed out correctly. So we start off in our report, just providing an executive summary of which I'm sure this committee is uh, well-versed in, in understanding the background of Measure A from its inception to its expenditure plan, um, and then going into the governance of Measure A, which is this oversight committee and the tasks with which you've been, um, uh, with, with which you are responsible for. And then we go into the compliance oversight. And as Max and Chris mentioned, Measure A undergoes two different types of audit, one being the overall Measure A, and this is performed through an outside independent public accounting firm. And the second is performed by my internal audit team within the Department of Finance. So this audit report, the scope is solely on the subrecipient and their compliance to the provisions of the measure. So um, we provide a life-to-date uh, summary of Measure A sales tax revenue overall and how much of that was granted as awards to the subrecipients. Uh, we perform specific audit procedures to assess the uh, appropriateness and the framework behind the internal control surrounding Measure A and the subrecipient. We perform specific um, walkthrough and procedures to ensure that those internal controls were working soundly and effectively um, and were adequate in mitigating the risk of uh, errors or omissions, fraud, um, or misappropriation of assets. So no exceptions were noted. We also verified um, through our substantive audit procedures that there was no commingling of funds for those subrecipients who maintained cash balance, because as laid out in the measure, funds that are unused can be um, rolled forward year over year. And so we take a look to make sure that not only 
are we reconciled in the amounts that are awarded to the subrecipients and that expenditures incurred to date were in compliance and allowable um, with the measure, but that any existing fund balance is kept segregated from the remainder of that entity's funds. And then we also take a look at the actual expenditures that the subrecipients attested to spending. And on a sample selection basis, we review supporting documentation, make sure there's completeness, existence, accuracy, and overall compliance with the allowable activities that are laid out within the expenditure plan. So with that, um, as with previous years, we had no findings or observations to note, and um, based on the procedures that we performed, uh, no findings are noted for the scope period July 1st, 2020 through June 30th, 21. So with that, um, I will open it to your uh, committee for any questions or comments. Do we have any questions from any commission? Uh, Carolyn. Carolyn has a question down here. Oh, there we go. Uh, I do have a, a couple of questions, if I may, Certainly. about the process you you touched on of uh, granting or granting funds, say in year one, and then um, those funds aren't used in year one; they're rolled over to year two, three, four, whatever. Yes. Uh, my understanding from the last time we went through sub audits, when I asked a similar question, was that that rollover process is done because. Uh, the particular grantee might need a larger sum of money to do the project proposed than what's granted in a given year. So if you could just, I just want to make sure I'm clear on this. So I was looking at Appendix A of your report. Yes. And I see, or at least I hope I see, um, that there is a delta between the amount granted, I'm assuming in this last fiscal year, to the subrecipients and that of what they actually spent on the order of 258, almost $259,000. Correct. So for example, just so I can understand how this works, let's take town of Corte Madeira, for example, that one line. Mm -hmm. So in this last fiscal year, yes, they were granted roughly $80,000. Yes. Yet the expenditure, the same fiscal year, was three hundred and almost thirty-five thousand dollars. Correct. So then, again, just I want to make sure I'm a little math challenged here. What I'm looking at is that rollover phenomenon that you described. That yes. they year one, and then accrued until they had enough projects. Correct. Correct. They have so. so the measure calls out that funds can be rolled forward up to 10 years subsequent to the expiration of the measure. So this allows not only County of Marin Parks and Open Space, but also their subrecipients to roll forward funds for the reasons that you just mentioned. Oftentimes, you have to accumulate fund balance for larger projects or acquisitions or um, capital improvements um, that are significant in amount and usually the cost of which far outweighs what an organization would receive on an annual basis. And so they can accumulate what's called fund balance. So we look at not only the expenditures that they incurred for this particular scope period, we also look at the amounts that were awarded to them for this scope period, um, 
but we're also looking at the fund balance that they may have accumulated up until this point. Uh, so just if I can stay stay with us a little bit. Of course. Uh, I, I, my experience is in the federal system where there's somewhat different fiscal that's why I'm asking questions. So let's go back just to the example of the town of Puerto Madeira. When they come in year one mm -hmm. and put a grant application in, is it for, I'm assuming this is one grant, is it for the full, uh, a project that would cost that at $334,000? And so you say can't do that all in one year. Year one will do this, year two will do that, year three. So in other words, in year one, are you promising them that in the subsequent two, three, four, however many years it takes, that every year they will get an incremental additional grant? Yeah, I think I can help with this one. So the way that the, so there's there's three different types of grants that are have subrecipient audits. One is the city and town and special district grant. So that's 15% and there's a formula for how it's distributed, right? So they, each of those folks get a certain amount and then it's, um, they get more or less depending on population. So it's like a per capita distribution. Um, and so with the cities and towns, including Corte de Madera, they don't like have to write, a, it's not a competitive grant program okay. per project, That's right? That's exactly They're, where I was they going. Get a, they get a distribution of a certain amount. And so for them, the first year, they might not have a project. Uh -huh. They might still be in the development of that project. And so their funds keep rolling forward. And the use of those funds, like the determination of that project, is at the sole discretion of their city, town council. You know, it's the board of supervisors doesn't get to decide what their project is, right? It's in each of uh -huh. those, the discretion of those cities and towns. And so at the point, they may go through a planning process, then they finally determine a project. They probably do CEQA, you know, goes through all that, and then they're able to implement it. So with Corte Madera, that's likely what you're seeing here is they, you know, built up an accumulation of funds to do the project. If you look, if you go down your list starting at like, fell. right, well, but if you start at like 21, those and going down are recipients mostly who are funded through our community grants program. So they actually applied for funding for to do a program or a project. And so they spent the exact amount that they were funded for because that was to implement that project. Got it. So for those, it is a competitive grant program. Yeah. So that's why what they're awarded is actually what they end up spending. Exactly. And it doesn't roll forward. It's just. It, uh, thank you. Because uh, I was comparing it to a federal system where everything's competitive year to year. And so if you award one year, it shouldn't be just a segment of what you're going to get in additional years. Otherwise, it's what you call a coercive appropriation. That is, you're guaranteeing them, even though they're in a competitive pool. So these are non-competitive then, everything that's CTSD. Great, thank you. Thank you for the question. Do we have any other comments or questions? Please go ahead, Jonathan. Just one follow-up to that. Um, and taking Corte Madera again as an example, I'm just trying to understand if they were awarded 80,000, how did they get 334? Or am I reading that wrong? Yeah, no, you're right. So basically they're awarded money based on a formula each year, right? And so 
they had built in previous years, they hadn't spent out all the funds that they brought in. So they built up a fund balance and that funding is available to them. It's not, it doesn't get redistributed to the other cities and towns if they don't spend it. So basically in previous years, they built up enough fund balance to spend $334,000, even though they only brought in 80,000 that year. That okay, so it's the eighty thousand was just this one year. That's what they get. 2020, 2021. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. And if you look at some of these other cities like Nevada or San Rafael, who got five hundred thousand, they only spent seventy two. Yeah. The other four hundred thousand goes into like retained earnings, so to speak, that they save it for their next big project, and then next year they may spend nine hundred of it. Exactly. So, for example, for Corte Madera, when the measure first became went into effect, they received sixty-eight thousand approximately for the fiscal year twenty fourteen. But in that same year, they didn't spend any of those funds. And the following year, another approximately thirty-five thousand, but only spent twenty-five thousand. So, when you go over the course of 10, 10 or so years, they accumulate the fund balance. A simple follow-up to that, I hope. What did they say they're getting? They're asking for the money for in the years that they didn't spend. So, yeah, they don't. So they don't have to because the revenue gets divided up based on the formula. Oh, they okay. they just need to talk to us when they're going to make an expenditure to make sure the expenditure is in alignment. So they don't have they don't propose a project to get the funding. They get the funding for the allowed uses each year that revenue gets distributed automatically. Yeah, it's based almost like on Very a per helpful. capita formula. Thank you. Right. Yeah. Right. And uh, per our review of, you know, we, we perform samples over, year over year over these entities. And in our experience, we've noted that for the cities, towns, and special districts, it's primarily the nature of their expenses, the park maintenance and improvements, then the vegetation management and acquisition acquisitions, usually in that order. Yes, Carolyn. I, I'd like to just offer one suggestion. Certainly. Um, because this is a public document that other folks might pick up. And I, I just suggest it doesn't have to be elaborate. Uh, adding a couple of sentences just to the effect that to get over this notion that, oh my gosh, why, why, having, why am I paying sales tax that's not being used for a useful purpose that you just uh, explain that these are non-competitive grants and that there is a rollover that's allowed so that they can be, uh, the funds can be accrued for uh, a specific purpose that's going to meet the terms of Measure A. Is something that's Duly cool. noted, yes. Um, we do provide a summary in the beginning, but I think to emphasize exactly that from an accountability perspective and keeping our audience in mind, I appreciate that comment and we'll make sure to incorporate that for our future audits. So thank you. I can, very small addition, just say that it's allocated by a formula. That's what I was missing in that first part, that they're just yeah. basically just flowing based on their the share. Their share of the Thank pie. You. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. And Dan, you had a question? Uh, they answered it. Okay. Anybody else? Please, Robert. Um, it's somewhat of a naive question, but how does your audit in procedure or method differ from the outside auditor? Well, our, the external auditor is looking at Measure A overall. So they're looking, they're, they're taking it from the point of when funds come from the State Board of Equalization to the County of Marin, from 
it, it's incoming cash to the county county treasury and then into the department and then it's allocation the broader allocation of the different buckets that we've described and ensuring that that accounting is accurate and complete through that testing also understanding internal controls and performing walkthroughs of the process and understanding how it works um, all the way through to all of the expenditures that you see in the independent audit reports from salaries and benefits that are being charged to the measure. So probably doing test work on that to ensure that they're looking at payroll and benefits and things of that nature and that time cards to ensure that uh, the work or the, um, the charge codes that are being included on time cards are relevant to measure A. And then looking at the uh, not to exceed 5% administrative fee, doing a recalculation and that those um, expense reimbursements exist um, and are relevant to the measure. And also looking at other general government or administrative and financial charges towards measure A. And then overall to the amounts that are then allocated uh, to as a pass through grantee. Um, or contributions to other governments or um, other programs that are the community grant programs um, and ensuring that it meets the allocation percentages that are laid out within the measure. And they take a kind of general holistic view. And then we in the Department of Finance internal audit team, we take it further in looking at, okay, you've given these funds to subrecipients in accordance with the measure. Now let's make sure that those subrecipients are following the grant requirements and provisions that are laid out for them. Yes, if I can kind of expand on that. So there's the three piles, the 65, the 20, and the 15. Did I say it right? 65, 25, and 15. And so 20 and 15. So the only part that they oversee is the 15. The department, her department, so and the oversees this, and the twenty, and the and the twenty, and the community grant program, which is a small part, a of smidgen the part of that. But the Bedawi, the outside auditor, they audit the overall, all hundred percent, make sure that's being done. Thank you. Okay. All right. Thanks again. Um, okay. So uh, once again, I. Just from the commission, I just always amazed how well this goes. That there's so many things that go wrong. I know that you guys go back and forth, but the fact that it's happened so many years with no findings is just means that it's good management, not only on your side, but the subrecipients get a lot of credit for having gotten good directions and knowing how to do it right, staying the spirit of what the funding's for. So everyone gets kudos, I think. Well, I got to appreciate. Mina and the Department of Finance for being yeah. great partners. And also Kevin Wright is not here, but yeah. his work working with all of these subrecipients to make sure that they're doing the right thing is um, hurting a cats. big part of why it's successful. Yeah, it's amazing to me that that happens, that you're able to do that with how many, those are 35 different subrecipients in here all together. Yeah, and I would like to also emphasize that fact that uh, Kevin Wright in leading the subrecipients has been phenomenal. Yes. Um, there's and as I mentioned before, when we do our internal control review, it is essentially the work of Kevin and, his, and the rest of the team that, that demonstrates to us that there are strong internal controls and due diligence that's being done from the whole process start to finish. Um, 
everything from the work plans that are pre-vetted to the follow-up and then the recheck and the reconciliation to going out on site, taking pictures of the changes and the improvements and, and just keeping the, the accountability and the transparency that Kevin and his team are so dedicated to is what makes the success of these audits so commendable. Um, also to the fact that the timing of these audit reports have been in arrears in the past, it really speaks to the hurting per se mm -hmm. of having to gather all this information, not just from the county, but all the organizations and how they trickle down. We are working for our next audit to be uh, more timely and in line mm -hmm. with the independent broader audit. Um, but again, um, just uh, uh, very impressed and very uh, grateful for um, the subrecipients and um, and parks and open space for making it easy for us to come in and review and have that confidence. So great. Well, I think the timing works out well too, and having them staggered like that works well. Okay, so now we have any public comment about her report. I don't think there's anybody in the audience. Al, do you have anybody who is interested? Chair Malin, there are no speakers in the queue. Okay, great. We can move on to the next item, which is the present. Thank you. Oh, right. I'm sorry. This is an a, this is a, um, action. Uh, thank you, Larry, for keeping me in check here. So, um, so we need to approve the audit, right? That's what we need to uh, pass a motion. Do I have a motion? I move to approve the audit. Okay. And do we have a second? Second. All right, Larry. So all those in favor to approve the audit. Aye. Aye. Anybody objecting? No. Okay. Thank you again, Larry. All right. So now we're on to the next item, number nine, presentation of one TAM Forest Health Project. Well, this is a really cool one. I'll just introduce it. Um, I mentioned our One TAM Peak uh, Health Summit uh, recently, and Danny Franco here was one of the presenters. He's uh, Works. He's part of our One Tam Collaborative and works for Golden Gate National Parks Conservancy. And I feel this is like one of those things. I feel incredibly lucky to be a part of this partnership and get to work with somebody like Danny. So um, I'll turn it over to him. But this is this is some exciting stuff. Good. Okay. There you go. Good. Mike, check. Oh, look at that. All right. Thanks, Max. Hi. So I'm going to give you an overview of the uh, the regional forest health strategy that we've been working on for the past two years. Um, I will not take full credit for the strategy. It, it has been um, a, co a collaboration, uh, not just with our one TAM partners that you see the logos listed on the bottom of this slide, but also uh, our funder, the Coastal the Coastal Conservancy, California Coastal Conservancy, which is actually administering funds from the state regional forest and fire capacity program. That's a program of the state natural resources agency. So state natural resources agencies up here, they have some departments, you might be familiar, California State Parks, California Department of uh, Forestry and Fire Protection, also known as CAL FIRE, uh, and the Department of Conservation, they're all under CNRA. Uh, the um, the Regional Forest and Fire Capacity Program provided funding for this strategy that I'm going to give you an overview on. So just as a matter of orientation, uh, this is a one-tam initiative, right? This is uh, the one-tam collaborative. It, you may be familiar with the work, but just as a matter of background, I'll orient you to the collaborative. It's uh, made up of the four land managing partners of Mount Tamalpais. That's California State Parks, 
Marin County Park superstars in the room, uh, the National Park Service and uh, uh, the Water District. And the Golden Gate National Parks Conservancy is the nonprofit member, the nonprofit support partner to the collaborative. That's my employer. I'm a senior project manager, 12 years on the job. I always start this presentation with the 2016 peak health report or the measuring the health of the mountain. Uh, when the collaborative came together in 2015, uh, uh, this is one of the first big initiatives that it took on. Uh, the need to establish baseline conditions or the health of the mountain uh, was paramount for making decisions that are based in science uh, and what's happening with the resource on the landscape. Uh, so just a quick orientation of this document, which is on the One Tam website, and if you ever want to do a deep dive into the health of the mountain, I really encourage you to check it out. It's, it's a fascinating document. Uh, it's the result of an unprecedented collaboration between Mount Tam's land managers, uh, the Parks Conservancy as the nonprofit support partner, and the scientific community to use the most current available data and local knowledge to understand and evaluate the health of Mount Tamalpais. Uh, the peak health report used a suite of metrics developed to measure the health and condition trend of key ecological indicators. What does that mean? It means how many owls do you have nesting on the mountain? Uh, is that number going up? Is that number going down? The metric is the number of nests, the, uh, the uh, indicator species in that case, in that example is an owl. Uh, so using data and trend to establish what's going on with the resource. Uh, it also identified data gaps, and one of the big data gaps that came out of uh, the Peak Health Report in 2016 was that we need more data. Uh, in fact, we needed uh, a, a key, really uh, a missing piece was this need to have a vegetation community map that worked across jurisdictional boundaries. So you can imagine trying to compare the status of redwood trees uh, on NPS land and on uh, water district land is really difficult if you're wrestling with a map that doesn't have redwoods in both places or maps redwoods differently. Uh, so that was a, a key outcome and that's relevant for the forest health strategy and I'll get to that in just a slide or two. Uh, the, the other big takeaway from the peak health report that's relevant for this presentation is that um, con conditions in some cases do necessitate management. Uh, the forests in Marin County face multiple ecological stressors, uh, things like uh, invasive species, uh, plant disease, drought, uh, climate stress, degradation from past land use, uh, changing fire regimes or fire exclusion, really. Uh, uh, key, key to this uh, bullet here is that some indicators are declining, but they're still at a point where their trajectory can be improved, right? So we think that uh, uh, maybe the condition trend for second growth uh, a redwood forest in Marin County is you know, sort of declining, right? But it's at a place where it may be able to still be improved. Uh, so that's a kind of a key, okay, we need to do some management, but where do we need to do management in our forests? Let's do a strategic plan called the Marin Regional Forest Health Strategy. Uh, so I'll, I'll walk you through the, the kind of key components of the strategy in this slide, but uh, before I do, I just want to give credit to the working group that we assembled two years ago to start developing this strategy, made up of the natural resource managers at each of the one TAM agencies that I mentioned. So, uh, uh, you know, folks like Michonne Martin, uh, uh, Allison Forrestell, Chief of Natural Resources and Science at NPS, uh, Bree Hardcastle, Senior Environmental Scientist at uh, State Parks, uh, uh, Sean Horn from the Water District, and Carl Sanders, uh, the Natural Resource Program Manager, as well as a panel of expert technical reviewers, subject matter experts. We sort of convene everyone together in a working group. We met once a month for about two years uh, to kind of hash this out and, and deliver some of what I'm going to share with you today. 
Uh, so key components, the forest health assessment. So we wanted to define resilience. What does resilience mean for the key forest types that we profiled in the forest health strategy? And to name those there, Coast Redwood, Douglas Fir, uh, Bishop Pine Forest, Sargent Cypress Forest, and Open Canopy Oak Woodlands. Uh, we wanted to define what resilience means for those forest types uh, and to develop a GIS modeling framework that we can use to uh, map for, uh, forest health or where uh, forests may have departed from a, a desired condition or a quote unquote healthy condition. Um, using that conditions assessment, we wanted to then identify priority treatment areas for our partners. Uh, so this is all done at landscape scale, right, folks, like we're talking about countywide, right? Uh, but using a countywide GIS mapping uh, to look at the condition, uh, the conditions, condition assessment uh, to identify areas that will benefit from stewardship and active management. And then we want to integrate uh, the wildfire hazard and building density layers to flag, you know, multi-benefit treatment areas, areas where you might be able to do ecologically focused treatments could, that could have that secondary benefit of reducing fuels uh, in areas adjacent to communities or critical infrastructure. We did some compliance analysis. This was largely based on uh, analysis of existing compliance documents that our partners have or a programmatic statewide compliance like the California Vegetation Treatment Program. Um, we also wanted to learn from the demonstration work that happening up on Marin waterlands because they're in a unique position of being a utility. They're kind of way out in front of the rest of the partners in terms of forestry management. And so we learned from their approach. We learned from their compliance approach, their nesting bird survey approach, their bat survey approach, their rare plant survey approach, stuff like that. Uh, and then this is where we're really at in the strategy now is just rolling out the implementation approach, which is a lot of writing. So I took a break to uh, from my writing to come present with you today, but um, that's combining the, the forest conditions analysis uh, and the priority treatment areas into kind of a cohesive strategy that is really a decision support tool for land managers to help them understand where they can focus their precious measure A resources, their precious resources uh, that they can get from CAL FIRE and other state sources to do uh, really good work to improve the health of and resilience of uh, forests across the county. Uh, the thread that runs through all of this is our community engagement work. Uh, we participate in meetings as you, as you see now. Uh, in fact, I'm, I'm meeting with the Marine Conservation League later this afternoon to update them on the forest health strategy. We wanna disseminate the key findings and information. Uh, we also have been working closely with MWPA. I want to make sure that that's clear, you know, making sure that we're not duplicating efforts, that we're sharing data. A lot of the data that's coming out of the forest health strategy has been made available to MWPA so that they can know what we're up to and we can know what they're up to uh, so that we can, you know, leverage and increase the impact of our, our work through partnership. And then I just really want to um, uh, say that this bullet on increasing tribal participation through collaboration with Federated Indians of Grattan Rancheria uh, the original stewards of the land that's now called Marin County, uh, Coast Coast Miwok people. Uh, we reached out to the tribe through our NPS and state park partners uh, we, with just in the interest uh, in inviting the tribe to participate in development of the strategy, uh, recognizing that the tribe has special knowledge about forests in Marin County and the environment overall. And I'm really proud to say that um, through that those conversations and listening and sharing that we were, uh, it, the tribe was able to identify someone, a Coast Miwok citizen and a professor of anthropology at UC Berkeley, Dr. Peter Nelson, who um, was, uh, uh, we were fortunate enough to be able to get Dr. Nelson to help us write a whole chapter in the forest health strategy on traditional tribal knowledge and recommendations for collaboration with the tribe. That's really exciting. I'm really, I'm really proud about that work. Okay, bear with me while I take you through just these few technical slides. Um, they might be a, li a little bit more detail than you want, 
but you know there's always good questions about uh, did you go deep enough? And so these are my slides to let you know that we did. Uh, defining forest health is a complex and highly dependent on the type of forest or geography and other environmental factors. So as an initial part of our uh, strategy development, we created these conceptual models for each forest type we are profiling in the forest health strategy. I won't walk you through this whole crazy spaghetti web of thinking here, but the purpose is to assist us in defining what forest health means for each forest type that we profiled in the strategy. Uh, identify those metrics that we can use to assess condition trend. Is it going up? Is it going down? Where? Uh, where on the landscape? Uh, to identify specific stressors or threats to forest health, uh, things like sudden oak death impacts, and then to highlight potential approaches to stewardship and management, active management, that would have these multiple beneficial outcomes that we're looking for. Okay. I mentioned the countywide fine scale vegetation map. Here's a, here's a nice graphic showing the veg map. Uh, in 2021, OneTam completed that county's first uh, first ever comprehensive fine scale vegetation map. So for the first time, and uh, we were able to not only um, have that map that works across jurisdictional boundaries that I mentioned was a data gap in the 2016 peak health report, but we can understand the distribution of all the forested lands in Marin County and their floristic composition. This is done using uh, the California Department of Fish and Wildlife and CMPS's protocol for mapping vegetation. So the nice thing about it is it can be compared regionally to other counties that have maps uh, like neighboring Sonoma and San Mateo counties. The map provides us with a comprehensive data set that can be analyzed to understand the, the composition and distribution of forested areas across Marin County. This map is, that I'm showing now is identifying 34 different forest communities in Marin County. The map itself has 100 different vegetation communities in it. It's uh, made up of about 100,000 GIS polygons, each one representing its a stand of vegetation on the landscape. Pretty cool. But beyond locating the forest stands and describing their general composition, uh, we worked through the forest health strategy to enhance the vegetation map with other detailed information like the presence of mortality and tree canopy. So then you're starting to look at, okay, well, where do you have disease impacts? You know, it's nice that you have a map of all the forests, but which ones have, you know, mortality in the canopy? That tells us where you have sudden oak death impacts or pitch pine canker disease impacts. Uh, that helps us kind of hone in on different areas on the landscape, right? So the first map I showed is just the vegetation communities. And then we, wow, we overlay the mortality mapping. It gives you an idea of areas that you might wanna do some field investigation and potential treatment on. Uh, using LIDAR analysis, we performed, uh, you know, um, um, to understand the structure of a vegetation stand. So now we're not just talking about the type of vegetation or how much mortality is visible in the canopy, but now we're talking about how dense the stand is. Uh, it, you know, is it even aged? Does it have a multi-layered canopy? Those are signals that ecologists can use for identifying opportunities to do stewardship and active management. And this uh, really shows the the kind of the fire history mapping that we did as part of this project. Cal Fire has a fire history layer, but it was incomplete. So we hired an historical uh, ecologist, Arthur Dawson from Glen Ellen, who um, did a deep dive into the actual historical record, reading old newspaper clippings. And uh, when he could, for fires greater than 160 acres, recreated perimeters of fire. So now we can overlay all of that information that I just rattled off about disease, mortality, uh, forest structure with things like, well, when's the last time it burned? Because this is an, a, a landscape that's designed by nature to be, to experience periodic fire. You may have places that haven't experienced that periodic fire. That's a departure from a desired condition. That's a clue that land managers can use to help hone in on areas that could benefit from active management and stewardship. I'm going to skip this slide because it's more of the same. <laughs> 
Uh, we, we, we integrated wildfire hazard and, uh, and risk to community. I mentioned that we are collaborating with MWPA. The, um, the purpose of this work is really, again, to look for opportunities where our land managers that are managing for uh, resilience and forest health can understand where those treatments might be leveraged by MWPA or by the agencies themselves to do really good work uh, to protect community, right? Uh, so we integrate building density and WUI layers. We combined uh, our forest health analysis with those building density and WUI layers so that we can identify areas that might benefit from having a multi-benefit approach to or a prescription that does both uh, address forest health concerns, uh, increase resilience, and also have some community protection benefit. And then all of that is going to be summarized uh, in the final strategy document, which we are aiming to put out early next year. Wow. I just really thank you, Danny. This guy's amazing. I skipped a few because you know, <laughs> I could see I was losing my audience. I, I'll just I'll just briefly add, you know, measure A was really important in this work. When uh, we first found out that we there was some funding from I think like USGS to do the fine scale veg map, we needed, and there was a private donor who was also interested in helping to fund it. We needed some dollars to leverage that funding, and measure A was the thing that made the difference. It wasn't a huge contribution, it was relatively small, but it started this process of getting that map going. And then we got this gigantic grant from the Coastal Conservancy because we'd already started that mapping work and it's just grown from there. And um, as you can see, it it's a really neat thing because it means now our work going forward can really be informed by this very deep science-based uh, approach. Any questions, anybody? Yes, Robert. Yes, I have three questions. I'm sorry, but I missed the um, the terminology for GIS modeling. Mm -hmm. Not sure what that means, I, and perhaps I missed the definition. Your definition? No, I, I didn't provide it, and I'm, I apologize for that. Um, the definition of GIS is geospatial information, right? So it's a tool that managers use to um, locate you know, anything on the landscape. You're familiar with GIS because you use Google Maps, right? Google Maps is GIS. Um, uh, the model is, you know, it's, we're familiar with models. Um, we, we, we use them. Uh, the weather is like the best example, right? Like weather, you know, you're, the weather predictions that, you know, the meteorologist uses, he's using a model of what he thinks is going to happen. Uh, as we know from watching the weather, some, you know, most models are inaccurate, but some models are helpful. Uh, and so a GIS model is really a spatial model of X, Y, or Z, in this case, a spatial model of forests and their condition. Yes. Secondly, my question is, do you have jurisdiction on the private lands, uh, agricultural lands, the ranch lands? We don't have jurisdiction, right? Um, uh, but we did include those lands in our analysis so that that data would be available for those land managers if they wanted to use it. And finally, do you have input as to where specifically where trails are used and there's great degradation because there's overuse on the trails? Does that be, is that under your, uh, let's say, uh, your opinion, your authority? So I can take that one. This this effort was sort of focused at forest management work, right? We have a separate program focused on our road and trail management, and John Campo is going to present about that later. So thank you. Yes, Jonathan. 
two quick questions and it's excellent information. Thank you. One is where can we find the GIS? <laughs> two is who does the GIS? Is it somebody internal or external or, or what? Yeah, that's a great question. So actually the county just um, launched a portal. Um, I can't remember the URL off of the top of my head. I think it's- You can, I yeah. think you can find it. So I'll email, yeah. remind me and I can get you the email address, but I think it's on our website. If you just go to our veg management uh, page on the Marin County Parks website, I think there's a link there. Yeah, we'll make sure you get that. It's, yeah, it's cool. What's finished is available through that and it's really interesting. Um, the second is it took a huge team to do the GIS work. Uh, some of it internal staff, uh, internal expertise, and then a team of consultants as well. Yeah. Key is that now you have a baseline. I mean, that's really yes, sir. Nothing. So I think that's great to accomplish that. Yeah, we're excited about that too. Okay. Any other comments or questions from the commission? How about out in the public comment or commissions? Anybody? Now. Yes, we have Nina Sito. Please unmute. Okay, please. Thank you. I so appreciate this summary and uh, the point made that it shall be a model for a future endeavor. Um, what can what interests me is the opportunity and the the mandate and the need to collect more and more data. And what seems to me an, is that an important subset is being eliminated in the discussion, and uh, that is of user groups. And so we talk a lot about uh, sudden oak death and forest canopy, but has it been correlated with, uh, for example, the number of mountain bikes that traverse under that path? Mm -hmm. And to separate that into a road and trail you know, discussion, uh, is disrespectful to the model created here and again the imperative for data collection but if we're going to collect data let's do it so that meaningful conclusions can be drawn and so that opinions aren't self-selected for a predicted outcome is is just my concern i don't want all this hard work all the data fields all the technology to be for expense and not thank you thank you nina once again i appreciate your comment Chair Malin, there are no additional speakers in the queue. Great. Thank you, Alan. Okay. Well, with that, we can move on to the next thing. Once again, thank you very much for your, for your presentation. I think it's very enlightening. Okay. So this one here is also an informational item, um, and it's just about what work has been done by the department with the Measure A funds for year to date. Thank you, committee members, and uh, thanks for your patience. I know we've got a lot here to go through, so I really appreciate it. Um, and this is actually, this is one of my favorite presentations that we try to do each year at this time. And we we didn't uh, we, we didn't include every single thing this year because we just thought that might be a little too much. So we really focused on three uh, areas, on road and trail management, vegetation and fuels management, and park facilities. Um, I don't know, Chris. We don't have stuff on equity, civil rights. It's more focused on that. Yeah, I, I think it's it's mainly just focused on fuels, park facilities, and vegetation management and road and trail. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So I'll turn it over. This is Jim Cheka, who uh, manages our fuels management contracting and our relationship with the our fire parks. Thanks, Max. Take it away, Jim. All right. Well, I'll just say. Um, 
I am just one of, of a, a number of people that Max mentioned earlier that help us that help us do our work. Um, Michonne Martin is our chief of natural resources. She's here today and she does a lot to um, help us come up with strategies that have multiple benefits. And that's actually going to be a theme of some of my talking points today to um, inform all of you about how we do our work and, and what we're doing currently. So I just want to start with looking at this map of Marin. Um, if you're not familiar with looking at Marin in this way in sort of a landscape context, you'll see the San Rafael Bridge coming from the east in there. Um, and if you've spent time going up in north and south on 101, you'll be familiar with the built environment that exists all along that corridor. I think the challenge for us as a department is that our parks and open space preserves exist primarily in the built environment and adjacent to the built environment, whereas other land managers, um, you know, for example, the National Park Service to the west, it's in the dark green, um, state parks and others tend to be further away from the built environment. And so we have this responsibility to really support community wildfire safety. Um, what's going on in this map right now is you'll see a, a bunch of yellow blobs and those blobs indicate areas that are defined as the wildland urban interface. So the WUI is another way that people describe that. That is essentially where the built environment goes up against the wildlands and, you know, um, that's, so that's what that definition is. Uh, the, the red blobs that are in there represent the WUI that's in parks and open space land specifically. Um, it doesn't really jump off the page on this slide, but you know, you can kind of instinctively tell that there's a lot of land represented in that red. And, you know, it, it is about 5,000 acres total, um, which, you know, is nearly a third of our land. So we're, we're close. We're, we're in people's backyards. You know, we have 3,500 neighbors that we have and um, many more people that are represented by just those dwellings. So, so it's important that we work with all of our neighbors on helping them create defensible space. So the next couple of slides, I'm going to talk about benefits and, and how we, how we're getting our work done. Um, I know, I, I think Max in his introduction earlier talked about multiple benefits and Danny was talking about multiple benef benefits and what that is, is trying to balance the various needs that, um, you know, we have as a land manager and that the community members have, um, you know, one, one need that our community members have is, is trying to reduce fire hazards in their backyard. So, so reducing fuels, and that means creating defensible space, which is like a buffer between the homes and the built environment to help slow the spread of wildfire. Uh, from a natural resources standpoint, you know, we want to be able to make sure we are, we are targeting weeds. And a lot of times in these uh, edges, you know, uh, between the built environment and preserves, this is a disturbed environment that weeds really love. And so that's an opportunity for us to be able to control invasive species, create a buffer for the migration of in invasive species into our preserves, which helps promote biodiversity. So if we can do all those things, we can reduce hazards, protect the, our neighbors and improve our biodiversity, then we're creating and accomplishing all the multiple benefits that we are setting out to do. Um, so how we get our work done, you know, we, ha we have like three prongs of, of our work, uh, three different sources that we lean on. And one of a really important source of labor for us is the Marin County Fire Department's TAM crew. I don't know if you've heard the TAM crew before. Basically, they're really a, a highly skilled labor force that comes back annually, and they specialize in wildland firefighting. They also specialize in vegetation management in these kinds of areas. So, you know, by us contracting with that labor group, um, you know, it helps us bring a wide range of capabilities including uh, the ability to manage dense fuels and challenging environments, 
um, they're able to remove dead woody debris. Um, they can thin vegetation and limb up trees to create horizontal and vertical spacing that helps slow the spread of fire if there were a fire in those areas. Um, and that, you know, those, those are the kinds of things that, that private contractors can do too. But one benefit that these folks have too in working in these remote areas where disposal can be challenging is that they can uh, both do chipping of material, but also create burn piles where, um, you know, they can basically create piles of vegetation that can cure. And then in a year or several months later on can go back and ignite those in a controlled way to dispose of that instead of having to spend the extra resources on hauling. And sometimes that's actually not even feasible. So it's a, it's a great tool. Measure A has been critical in allowing us to be able to use and contract with that group. Um, I wanted to highlight this project because this is something that the TAM crew has been supporting. This, and this is something that really intersects with Danny's work that he just mentioned. And this is, um, this is the Mount TAM Forest Health Initiative that he was speaking about. And this is the project area represented um, by San Geronimo Ridge. Um, <clears throat> what's, what's interesting about this area is it's, it, it, instead of being in the defensible space zone, it's actually a, a fire road. And a fire road's really a, an important facility as well as like these defensible space zones. So these are not fuel breaks per se, but they are important corridors for all of our fire response people to be traveling through if there was a, um, if there was an emergency. So one goal of this project is to improve firefighter safety and improve the corridor and access through these areas. Um, but also, uh, you know, the, the purpose and then multiple benefits of, um, that were outlined in this, in this particular grant, um, was, was to also control invasive species. And so this is an area where there's a lot of, um, small diameter dug fur. There's well-established Doug Douglas fur also, but removing those small conifers, uh, actually it, improves passageway through there and it also allows us to um, sort of control that species which has been dominating um, some of those areas. So just a little bit more about the grant. This was a three and a half million dollar grant that was awarded to the Golden Gate National Parks Conservancy. It funded and is funding Danny's work. Of that big chunk, $150,000 went to us to be able to do the implementation of this work and then Measure A was able to bring the required match, which was a 50% uh, match. So $150,000 coming from Measure A. So really cool project to brings together a lot of different aspects of our work. Um, this is just, these are some photos that um, are from the project. I'm just stumbling here because I'm realizing you can't really see the slides that well with the um, closed captioning, but that's okay. Do you have you, oh, perfect, there you go. Yeah. Um, so this is this is the project site. So the top photo shows that crew in action, you know, the kinds of things yep. you'd expect to see if you were up there on the ridge would be people in hard hats and power tools and gloves cutting and hauling material to thin that area. So the bottom left portion or the bottom left photo shows the forest conditions on either side of the fire road. And again, uh, sorry, I didn't mention this before, but our target distance from the fire road is like 30 to 50 feet on either side of the fire road. So that's what the forest edge would look like before work and then on the right is afterwards. So what's remaining is primarily, you know, larger diameter Douglas firs. You're creating a shaded environment that helps protect against opportunistic weeds by, you know, sun and sunlight and other things often um, allow weeds to flourish. So you're, you still have like a well intact forest canopy for that 30 feet, but they removed a lot of ground fuels and other things that help prevent fires from traveling and then crawling up into the canopy. Um, so again, just a, a good example of achieving multiple benefits and, uh, through that grant. So that's all people, people work. And then, you know, another 
aspect of our work is grazing. And that's something that people um, get really excited about. And it's also something that we're excited about, but it's something that we also try to evaluate year over year. Um, you know, we try to um, see what, what, excuse me, um, you know, for areas that we've, that we've grazed in the past to see if there's any issues that are arising and try to make changes where we can. Are there signs of erosion? Are there signs of invasive species entering these areas and try to modify our approach to those areas where we can? Um, this past year, we were able to uh, graze 106 acres, primarily uh, if, if you were able to look out these windows right now through the curtains, through the, um, the Terra Linda and Sleepy Hollow preserves. Um, we used about $90,000 of measure aid funds to graze 106 acres over 92 days. Um, I was just, I realized I didn't have the math on that, but it ends up being about $1,000 per day. And this is like herds of about 400 goats. So that's pretty economical, you know, $1,000 per day, which is a little, and also achieving a graze area of a little bit more than an acre per day. Um, it, it is a cost-effective strategy given the right conditions. It's not great in all species, in all habitat types. And it's really good for, um, you know, grasses and other places where they're going to want to eat that vegetation. Um, it can really set the stage to clear invasive species, to set the stage and set the table for hand crews to be able to go in and do their work. Um, so anyway, it's a tool, you know, that has been really useful and it's an important part and it will be an ongoing part of our, our vegetation management program. Um, and then last, you know, there's, there's the people aspect, but it's, you know, we have sort of our government employees and our government partners, we have our grazing, and then we have the private sector, which um, has been really important and can, will continue to be really important in, in how we get our work done. Um, they can come in and fill in gaps where we need it on maybe less technical projects. Um, you know, one of the challenges is that we are essentially competing for a very small um, labor market, you know, in Marin County and in the region, and we have an increasing demand on these companies to be able to do work, whether it's for us or with other land managers or private companies or Marin Wildfire Prevention Authority projects. So having um, a wide range of vendors that we can pull, pull from that, you know, uh, that we can rely on to have a light touch on our land and do the work that we um, in the way that we want them to do it. That's it's just an, an important part to do it, or important part of our work. And it, it kind of leads to, um, I'm getting ahead of myself by one slide. Let me show you an example of um, like where a contractor would, would potentially work. A lot of folks ask us like, well, how do you know, or how can you guide the, the crews when they're on site? And what does it look like? What kinds of materials do you develop in order to guide that work? This is an example of a project in West Marin. It's off of Mesa Road. So this would be the type of document um, that would be a map that we could we could geo-reference, which means that they could have this on a PDF or a tablet and they could see where they're located on their map as they're working as it relates to property boundaries. And like I said, we're in a lot of folks' backyards, so it's important that we you know, keep the work on our land. So we would develop a map. Um, using the GIS tools that Danny was talking about and create buffers away from structures. You know, the fire code primarily uh, outlines a, a requirement to maintain 100 feet of defensible space. Well, those red blobs are basically the GIS program creating those polygons for us so that we know that we're complying with that, those requirements. And then we can give, um, you know, we can give these tools to our contractors to better locate themselves. And then, of course, our own on-site supervision helps. Um, keep that all on track as well. So this is going to be my last two slides before I hand it over to Tara. And I just want to talk a little bit about 
capacity, because I just mentioned that with um, our labor sources and some of the ongoing challenges in the private sector. Um, you know, a really cool way that our department has invested in new capacity is our partnerships with organizations like Conservation Corps North Bay. That, that is a youth development organization that trains young people to do work like I'm describing in a lot of different kinds of work too. Um, you know, some something that the county has really been promoting for a while now is the initiatives that are geared towards equity, inclusion, and diversity, and partnerships like that really help advance those goals. Um, so, so by creating contracts with organizations like that that aren't prop, they're not in the private sector, they're nonprofit organizations. We can have them do work on our lands. Our staff can be there to train them and guide them, um, and so we sort of create our own um, relationships with and developing skills with these folks. And then um, these individuals often can become potential future employees for our department, which is great. So there's, you know, it's kind of important to develop these career ladders. Um, and so that's something we've been doing for a long time, thanks to Measure A. These are all contracts that are supported by Measure A, the work with Conservation Corps North Bay. Um, the Marin County Fire Department has also recently developed a program that's really exciting um, called the Fire Foundry. Um, the reason I'm highlighting it here is although it's their crew, we we utilize that crew just like we do the TAM crew to do uh, sort of less technical work on our lands too. Um, this is their strategy for um, directly working with youth and being able to train them on similar projects like the CCMB model I just mentioned, and then create career ladders into the fire sector too. Um, so that's, you know, that that is a new thing for us this year that this group has been working on uh, San Geronimo Ridge, the project I highlighted earlier. It's one that we are looking at to um, set aside time for on the schedule for this coming fiscal year as well for the remainder of this year and, and for next year. And so that's one that, um, yeah, we'll be excited to, to report back on, on that relationship in the future. So with that, I'll, I'll hand it over to Tara McIntyre and she'll give you a report on parks facilities. Did we wanna wait for questions till the very end, Max? Yeah. Okay. okay. Okay, thank you. Sounds good, thanks for your presentation. Thank you. Hey, good afternoon. Uh, see if I can do this. I can't see my notes, so I'm just going to hold them way out there. <laughs> I this is I, I definitely need transitional lenses. Have been a denial for a while, but here they come. Um, so I'm Tara McIntyre. I'm the principal landscape architect and I lead with Marin County Parks and I lead the projects and design team. And I'm here to present uh, just a overview of some of the projects that we've been, we've worked on and we are working on right now. So some will be familiar to some, but we have you know new committee members. So hopefully this will be new information for you. And uh, with that, we'll get started. Um, so Black Point, this is a, a facility we uh, operate. It's a boat launch and fishing facility up under, literally under Highway 37 in Novato. And uh, this project was a, um, the, the photo's really going to speak for itself. Uh, so if you take a good look at this, this was the existing, and this is what we did. Uh, this was a grant. So we leveraged Measure A funds uh, with a grant from uh, the uh, National Fish and Wildlife Foundation, which is money that came from the Costco Busan oil spill. And so with that uh, the, that grant fund and leverage of Measure A, we were able to uh, put some new life into the boat launch. And here's another little 
before and after. So uh, really, that was an exciting small project um, and one that people have really appreciated. Then down to Bayside. So Bayside Park, aptly named park, it's over on San Rafael. If you're driving out to McNears, don't blink, you'll drive right by it. Uh, now, hopefully you'll notice it a little bit more. Uh, this was a project that was initiated because of ADA issues. Uh, you can see the, the asphalt heaving there in the photo. Um, and with uh, um, accessibility funds from the county, as well as some Measure A funding, we undertook this in partnership with our DPW folks uh, to renovate this park. Uh, it is now fully ADA accessible. So instead of asphalt, now we have concrete so that doesn't crack as much or heave. Uh, we have more native plantings and, uh, and we're recently putting in the turf that was supposed to go in, which we paused because of the drought. So the um, chips that you'll see in this next photo uh, will be turf here shortly. Um, and that also had new site furnishings and uh, a new ADA parking stall. So there's lots of little elements there, but it's a really adorable uh, little spot to sit on the bay. And in the theme of accessibility, this is a really small project, but a really important one. So back in 2016, we adopted uh, the IAP plan, which is our inclusive access plan. And it helped to identify you know, how we would approach um, increasing access to preserves and parks. And this is uh, at Agate, Agate Beach, which is up in West Marin, um, just on the backside of Bolinas. And this trail sign, which uh, you, you probably have seen these in national parks and in California state parks, where it provides the information that a user needs to make their own decision whether or not they're going to proceed. And so we provide trail uh, width, there's trail surfacing, there's the slopes, the cross slopes. Um, so it gives people that information. So this was something that we just uh, rolled out and it's really, um, I, I love the signage. Signage is really amazing. Um, I, it's a pet project, pet uh, thing I like. Um, dog waste. I'll try to limit my words here because this one's a really um, exciting project because we've been working on it for a while and one wouldn't associate dog waste with exciting, but it's an important one because it's it's an ongoing issue, not just for our agency, but any any public agency. Um, and so we've been picking away at this, and you can see it's phase three. So phase three is you know we're still uh, and we're, we're and we're changing. We've changed things as we've gone. We've um, been adding new uh, signage and more messaging that really tells people why we need you to pick up your waste and the impacts that it has on our waterways and our natural resources. Uh, and the thing that's really great about this is that the public has really reached out to us and we get calls, our, our chief rangers and superintendents, they get um, requests all the time. And so we have a growing list of where we are gonna continue putting these out. This is a little bit different. Um, this is a, a fun project that we did last spring. Uh, it was an effort to increase um, access options and especially ones that are uh, low carbon um, emissions. So the theme is bike to hike. And, and it was kind of something I personally didn't know about. And, and one of um, uh, you know folks from MCBC had brought it to our attention as well as uh, internal staff and 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 so this was a way to provide um, parking, bike parking for folks, especially, and this is at Phyllis Elman. This is 
if you haven't hiked this, this is a beautiful trail to access Ring Mountain. It's also on a bike route. Um, it's a very popular Tiburon loop ride. And this is not a bike trail. There's no bikes allowed. So it's you know, kind of reinforcing like, hey, come hike this trail, park your bike here and, uh, and come enjoy the preserve. This is a project that we're working on right now. Uh, this is the Mill Valley Sausalito pathway over by Edna McGuire uh, Elementary School. And uh, so it's on the backside of Horse Hill and, and also Horse Hill. So the pathway cuts from um, Edna McGuire and then you ride across Lomita and then you enter into Horse Hill. So this signage is a way to improve um, visitor wayfinding. Um, this is really on the heels of, we just undertook uh, the, a giant um, uh, sign rollout in our open space preserves, which I, I hope everybody has seen. Um, we have entry maps and there's new trail signs and there's new information kiosks. So this is our next uh, effort to go into our pathways. And so this is a prototype uh, sign because again we want to make sure we do this right and we that's how we did it in the open space we did some prototypes we tested them out and so we're going to test materiality here um, and and just make sure we're we're hitting it right before we take the next steps but this is integrating the pathway signage and you can see on the left the the countywide bike um, system signage it will integrate that as well and we're working with um, the uh, the county bike uh, coordinator as well, bikeway coordinator. And while we're on the pathway, let's go a little bit south. This is a project that we we did last year about this time. We finished it up in, I think, October. Um, it was a long time coming. It was a project that uh, this, this section of pathway, this is down from Mike's Bikes to Tam High. It's about a mile and a half long. Uh, the pathway was cracked. It hadn't been touched since 1981. Um, so this was our effort to uh, kind of put a Band-Aid uh, on it for a little while because we have, you know, we've been working on the Bothine Martian and, and how that, that's a whole other project. So this is to keep the path in good shape. And it's a microsurfacing pro process. So it's kind of a fancy slurry seal, but it also, uh, you know, we had new striping and, and new uh, icons on the pathway. The one thing that was really amazing about this is that we had to close this path during school. That was an undertaking like no other. And it literally took a village. It took every stakeholder involved, um, uh, um, Safe Routes for School, MCBC, all of our staff. I mean, it was all, all hands on deck um, and it went really well. So we were pretty pleased about that. And we had good weather. McNear's parking lot. And while we're in paving land, this is a, a you know our one of our crown jewels of our regional parks. Uh, you can kind of see there's some. Oh, so we have to stop talking. You can see the patches of uh, paving that are not there. Uh, this parking lot has been long uh, due for an overhaul, and so we were awarded a grant for um, five. Oh boy, four hundred and almost four hundred fifty thousand dollars from Prop sixty eight. And we use that those funds leveraged with Measure A to redo this parking lot. And we changed the circulation. So now it's not a slalom course going in there. You never knew what you were going. Um, and uh, it's we have biotreatment uh, swales in there, new plantings, native plantings, and uh, it looks really great. 
the last two projects. So these are, we're finished up up north in uh, Stafford. So Stafford, this is a project, these are two projects that we're working on currently right now. Uh, and the five mile trail is a project that we are looking to uh, improve connectivity, um, formalize some trails that are out there in pathways, increase access, you know, we um, creating accessible, accessible routes to picnic areas that aren't there right now. Um, and really just making a cohesive way to connect the users from, and you can kind of see it on the very upper right hand, there's a little yellow line, that's Nevada bike path that leads all the way down along Nevada Boulevard. So it's basically connecting, and this is a, a um, just a, a concept, I, what we're working on is how that the new, new um, pathways, and they're all different types of materials and things like that, how that will connect um, and pull people off of the road because as there's nowhere to walk right now at Stafford. And the final project is the Stafford all-weather pump track. Uh, if folks aren't familiar, we built a bike park, a huge bike park um, back in 2015 is when we opened it and it's been an incredible success. And this is on the heels of that. This is a asphalt pump track and it allows for the, the facility to be open all all year. I mean, if there's a down or poor, it would be probably closed, but um, so it, it's, it's durable. And the thing that's really great about this is it would be open for all users. It's not just bikes. So you could have scooters on it. You could have skateboards, rollerblades. These have been built all over the world. It's kind of the new rage you know, I'm for, for um, this type of facility. Uh, and let me go the next slide here. And, and this is the site that we're planning on. This is by the, um, well, it's Nevada Boulevard, you can see on the top. It's currently being used as a overflow parking. Um, it's on your way to the bike park when you come inside the park. And then this is our uh, uh, proposed uh, design. So it's two pump tracks. There's a larger pump track for kind of a wider range of skills. And then a kid's pump track, because we learned from our experience of the dirt pump tracks that parents, you know, little kids, we want to separate them. There's a viewing area, there's a new parking lot, um, and all the regular amenities and, and plantings as well. So that is the whirlwind tour through what we've been working on, what we're working on now. And with that, I'm going to hand it off to John. And we'll have them with questions at the end, right? Okay. Good afternoon, folks. Um, thank you. So let me see. I'm going to turn it on. Oh, there it is. Okay. So um, usually I, I do a uh, kind of annual end of the year type of report on trails. And this year I wanted to do something a little different. I wanted to do a retrospective. Um, I've been here since 2016, and that's the year that the RTMP, um, we began implementing the RTMP. And there's a couple new committee members, so I thought it'd be good to do a little overview. So I'm going to just walk you through that. Um, so Marin County preserves, right? So we have 34 preserves, 16,000 acres. We manage 76 miles of designated trails and 100 miles of roads. Now that doesn't include state parks, national parks, that's just us. And like all the other land managers, we inherit our system of roads and trails. We don't 
we don't get them pre-designed for recreation. A lot of times they're ranch roads, logging roads, um, even military roads. So in this photo, this is um, Pacheco Valley. This is the Ponte, Ponte Fire Road. And it was an old ranch road. And you can see on the right, it got so worn out. There was another road built on the left. Neither, neither road was good as a ranch road and they were definitely not good for recreation. So that later on, we turned into a project. And so because we inherited this system of roads and trails back in 2010, there was a conversation really how to, how do we evaluate what we have and, and really think about what we have in, in terms of roads and trails. And so there was discussions to develop a road and trail management plan. And those, there were many public meetings and discussions and that went on for several years. And finally in 2014, um, the board of directors adopted the plan. And so this is a 200 plus page document. And, you know, I typically distill it down to these three bullet points. Um, and these are the three goals that really drive all of our work on roads and trails. So we try and reduce the environmental impacts of the roads and trails on sensitive natural resources, improve the visitor experience for all users, and establish and maintain a system of sustainable roads and trails. And so the plan also outlined a, a protocol for evaluation of these roads and trails. And so we broke it up into six regions. And so um, we actually, this evaluation process started in 2015 and it was just completed um, this summer of 2022. And that was region six. And so that was a huge milestone in itself, completing all of that evaluation. And that really created the blueprint to develop projects from. And so that map is, I know it's not really legible. It's, it's really just to illustrate that's what a regional map looks like for, for evaluating roads and trails. It doesn't have one preserve, it has multiple preserves and it looks at everything in that area. So it, it doesn't get super granular. It just creates the blueprint for future projects. And so that circled area right there, that's um, the Memorial Trail. And so that's a project that we're developing. And so that's part of the region five planning process, but a, a very specific part that we developed out. And so over the years, our project development process has really evolved. Um, we do enormous amount of stakeholder outreach. And the way that we do stakeholder outreach is we don't go to the stakeholders with a planned project. We typically go to them with an idea um, hear their feedback, and then have an iter iterative process to develop the project. And that's really worked well for us. Um, we've also developed um, a group we call the Environmental Roundtable, and that has the leading environmental groups in Marin. Um, we convene a monthly meeting. We discuss projects really before their projects, while they're still ideas. We get feedback on those ideas, and then eventually, typically after many years, we develop it into a project. We also, to help inform the process, we do um, staff biological assessments. We have wildlife biologists and vegetation ecologists on staff. And so we really want to get to know the land, um, especially within the project area, to make sure we're not impacting sensitive species. And then we, again, we take all that information back to the stakeholders. 
and then we develop our shared goals um, around the project. And those shared goals really should be those same goals that I talked about earlier that define the road and trail management plan. And through the this process in the last six years, um, you know, I, I myself moved to Marin for the open space, for the trails. I was living in the city and, you know, like so many people in Marin love the trails and that this stakeholder engagement, you really see it. You see how passionate people are about the trails, but then we really, really saw it during the COVID lockdown when all the sports programs were canceled, everything was canceled, everybody was on the trail. And so it was just such a, you know, I think people were really grateful to live where we do to have this network of roads and trails. And so I'm gonna just really quickly walk through some, some of the projects that we've done over the last six years. This is by no means all of them, um, but over the last six years, I will say that we've added 12 miles of new trail system in the county. And a lot of times that's not necessarily creating a new trail, it's taking an old trail and repurposing it and upgrading it into a sustainable trail. And so this photo is the Boulder Springs Trail in Gary Giacomini. This is an old um, logging road that was repurposed into a trail in 2016. Also in Gary Giacomini um, was the Hunt Camp Trail in 2017. And so this was, this trail was actually an old hunter's trail. Um, our research goes back a hundred years that this trail was on the map. Um, and so we had a hundred volunteers come out, camp at a nearby ranch and help build this trail. It was a really fun effort. In 2019, we completed the Eagle Rim Trail, which is a connection to the top of Mount Burdell. Um, again, we worked with volunteers and the Rotary Club to help build this trail. And in 2020, um, we completed the Ponte Ridge Trail. So this was actually our, our biggest effort to date. Um, this is about a three and a half mile trail. It, it uses a lot of that old road that I showed earlier. Um, again, we had volunteers. It was an incredibly complex project, took about 18 months to build. It, it won a state award for project development. And we were, we were in COVID when we were just about done. And we, we kind of opened it up a little early because people wanted it so much. And it's quickly become one of our most popular trails. In 2021, we improved um, four different trails on the east end of Rush Creek. Um, again, these are old Jeep roads, irreparable um, fire roads. We repurposed them into the Blue Oak Trail, the Acorn Trail, the Lucky Aces Trail, and the Spurs Trail. And this was uh, especially important for the equestrian community. There's a horse arena out there, and they had really no legitimate access to the preserve. So we, we created that as part of this project as well. In 2022, this was just this past spring, we completed the Montmorin Trail. It's a small trail, but it closed an important gap in a neighborhood connection to the ridge line. And we are working on this one as we speak. And so this is in Baltimore Canyon. It's a small connection to the Piedmont Trail um, called the West Baltimore Trail. So in addition to the project work I just outlined, that doesn't preclude us from working on the all the ma annual maintenance that we do. And so, we partner with the fire departments, local and county, and prioritize fire roads for improvements every year um, to make sure that the emergency access is available. 
We also do infrastructure improvements such as trail bridges, punch-ins, trail stairs, retaining walls. That's all across the county. And also, um, you're going to hear a presentation about our, our nursery. And so we've been leaning into that for habitat restoration as well in terms of social trails that we're closing because they're not sustainable um, and we want to improve the habitat. So we grow plants in that nursery and then rehabilitate those sites. And then just looking forward, um, right across the street behind the Terralinda High School, we have this uh, Memorial Trail Improvement Project. It, I brought it to the board Tuesday and it, it just got approved. So I'm super excited about this one. We're hoping to break ground this spring. Um, and this is a really important project for the high school because currently the athletics programs don't really have access to the open space in, in a meaningful way. Um, the cross country team can't use the existing trails and the mountain biking team also can't use the existing trails. So this will provide that opportunity for them. Um, 2023, this is the Roy's Redwoods Restoration Project. Um, this is a, a really exciting big project to restore the hydrology um, underneath um, one of very few old growth redwood groves in Warren County um, and improve the access plan. So that, that's gonna be a, a big and exciting one. And I'll close by just saying that, you know, the slogan for Measure A is taking care of what we have, you know, and that goes for the, for the people, the roads and the trails. But for me, most importantly, the critters that live out in the open space, um, the most vulnerable, sensitive species, we have to do this in a thoughtful way that makes sure that we're protecting um, these animals as we think about these projects. That's it. Thank you. Well, that's a lot. Yes. Thank you for your patience. So that's it. I have to say, every time I see one of these reports, I'm always so impressed with how much how far we get with our money. I mean, this is just a small portion of it. The rest of it goes to all the other percentages, but get a good bang for our bucks. So any comments or anybody for, yeah, please, Johnson. I just wanna say thank you to everybody who presented. I um, think of myself as a super user of the Marin County Parks and Open Space. And I have four kids and try, try not to watch much television. So I'm out there with them and I, recognize pretty much every single picture in this presentation um, and just want to compliment everybody, whether it's the fire protection, the maintenance, um, and I have to say the signage, um, and I'm sorry she's left, but that signage is amazing. And growing up in Marin, I used to wonder what the trails were, what the names were, and I had five or six different maps I'd try to piece together and figure out if I could ride my bike here or there, you know, or whether there was a steep drop off at the end of one of them. Um, so the signage, maintenance, the fire protection, it's all really excellent. So thank you. Thanks. Any other comments or questions? How about the public? Do we have anybody in the public that would like to comment? Al? Yes, we have Nina Sito. Please unmute. Thank you. Thank you. Um, wow, I'm, I'm sort of sputtering. Ahead, Nina, um, thank you. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Nina, stand by, please. No, we can't hear you now. We heard you for a second. Okay. So this really isn't working, is it? Nina, stand by. I'll let you know when it's ready. This whole system really isn't working, is it? No, it's not working. Nina, stand by, please. I'm standing by. 
What do you need me to do? Yeah, just wait until we give you the signal and then. Uh, oh, no, I'm not going to be quiet in the meantime. Uh -uh. We, we have you on. We're Go ahead. To Great. OK, so um, I, I guess I'm going to offer my comments uh, separated by a presenter. Uh, Mr. Corton, I hope the uh, fire authorities are as generous in promoting the open space district programs as you have been in advancing theirs. Um, I am um, just sort of surprised by the disconnect between accepting a crew of wildland uh, personnel decimating with their engines and chainsaws and whatnot a landscape in the name of fire prevention while my dog can't stray six feet off a trail because it's a preserve? What kind of inconsistency is that? Uh, moving, uh, and, and the careerism, um, not your job. It seems to me our job is to pr protect the open space district and fire. Let's look at that. Um, as to contractors, are, it sounds like a protection racket for... Um, it just sounds like a protection racket for contractors and landscapers, frankly. Uh, just as a member of the public, and I would so like to be wrong, as to signage issues, I agree the signs are beautiful, but what the heck anyway? It's all clean up dog waste, it pollutes the water. What, you don't think the other users leave waste? You think they don't? Come on, there, there's just like a virulent anti-dog message and I'm, I'm hearing again and again, oh, the bikers, the mountain bikers, the high school students, they need the mountain bike trails, but what about the other users? Um, I'm interested in hearing about stakeholders. I'm a stakeholder. You can tell I'm a dog owner and I am in something of a quandary about how to be identified and reached out to so that my opinion and my experience as a behaviorist and trainer and dog owner and a community advocate for families of all kinds some of us didn't have children. Some of us pay taxes for schools, but we have, uh, they're not fur children, they're dogs. And they deserve um, recreation and their people need it. And you guys, open space, uh, don't seem to get it. I, I'm just flummoxed. Uh, I'm just uh, flummoxed by it. And I know you guys mean well, but it seems to be a big picture perspective of what these trails exist for. And, and particularly for whom is not being considered. I'd like to know what's going to be done about that. And thank you for my comments time. Chair Whalen, there are no additional uh, speakers in the queue. Great. No, I'm sorry, it's Whalen, Malin, sorry. That's okay. Thank, thank you again for the public comment. I think it's appreciated that people be able to have a chance to say, and hopefully it's heard what her concerns are. I, okay. I can follow up again too, Joe, just to reiterate, to get in touch, uh, Nina, on our website, there's contact info for both John and myself. Happy to follow up with you. Yeah, and I also want to say that I know that it's everyone's intentions to be able to take everybody's considerations into this, and I think that there's been a lot of efforts to hear everybody and including the dog population with the with the waste bags and all of that stuff. So I think it's it's a balance. I second that. I love dogs. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yes, please, Carolyn. Could I just add a, a, a tardy comment, if that's possible? Uh, and I, it was, it was uh, triggered actually by the, the commentary about dog use and, and other trail use. 
And that's uh, a phenomenon I've certainly seen at other parks, which is we love our parks to death. We overuse the parks. And so there's always a constant battle between trying to balance use versus sustainability. And I use sustainability uh, as meaning something that's going to allow the park to continue into the future. And so I, I take it from all of the projects that were laid out in this report that they've gone through CEQA, that there's been an evaluation of sustainability and of use and of trying to balance, back to the comments about dog use, trying to balance users as well as not loving our parks to death. And so I guess I would just like to conclude this comment by thanking staff for trying to do what's sometimes I think an impossible task, which is balancing out all of those interests. And then on top of it, you add the concern about fire uh, and wildfire. Uh, speaking as someone who just stared down not 50 feet from my backyard, you know, a, a grasslands fire in a very urban area, I think that's something that has perhaps changed a lot of users' point of view about how you balance those interests. So I suspect you're gonna to continue to have a lot of challenges as you go forward in terms of, again, balancing use, not overloving the parks, not overusing them, and how do you deal with wildfire? So thanks for allowing me to just add that comment at the end. It's a great point. And I think, you know, one of the things John mentioned our, our work at Roy's Redwoods, but really all of our our trail projects are focused on that one, that exact thing, which is we know that visitation has increased and will continue to increase. And honestly, we, we want to welcome people to visit open spaces and parks. But if we design our trails in an appropriate way, then we can welcome folks and still have a lower footprint than if we don't. So Roy's Redwoods is a great example. There wasn't really a formal trail system. And so people would come there and just like go everywhere. And when you have really low use, that's okay. But once you start getting a high amount of visitation, then the understory gets really trampled. It really has a heavy impact. And so the work we're doing is to formalize the trail system so that we can accommodate the amount of visitation we're seeing. Well, I think the points that were made by the road and trail management, the three points really seem like they're a good uh, uh, guide for keeping our focus. Okay, well, thank you again for all the comments. So the last uh, presentation we have here really is about the native um, plant nursery that everyone's really excited about. And uh, you saved the well, best for the last. I just want to appreciate Appreciate Asia who's here and for her patience and, and yes. being last. Hanging out. Um, but something that's really cool is that Measure A helped us rebuild our Lagoon Park facility and build a nursery facility there several years ago. And unfortunately it happened right as the pandemic started. And it we had some work in there, but not a ton. And this year Asia came in and really breathed new life into that facility. And um, and so we're, we're now looking at how to make that long-term, the, the work that she started, but um, I want to hand it over to her to present about this and, and describe the work okay. she's done. Is this the same Asia that was the subject of the letter? 
Yes. Okay. Yes. Perfect. Yes. There's been a lot of good press about the nursery, which is amazing. So, and thank you for bearing with us. This is the last one, last but not least. Um, so yeah, I'm going to talk about community-centered restoration uh, through the work at the Native Plant Nursery. And I just want to begin um, by reading a quotation from a mentor of mine, and, and I think someone who's really uh, in the field, Dr. Robin Walkimmer, bridging the gap between the old ways and the new scientific model that we have of thinking about our lands and how we approach management. Um, and this really, this is an ethos that really guides my work and I think kind of pervades a lot of the, the, the work that we do as, a, as the county parks. So it says, restoration uh, is imperative for healing the earth, but reciprocity is imperative for long lasting successful restoration. Like other mindful practices, uh, ecological restoration can be viewed as an act of reciprocity in which humans exercise their caregiving responsibilities for the ecosystems that sustain them. Um, so I like to keep that in mind when we do this work, because we can get down in the weeds really quickly, um, literally and figuratively about the, the, the toughness of the work or you know, getting into the models. But this is kind of the bird's eye view, I think, of what guides this work. Um, so when I think about the Marin County Parks Native Plant Nursery, I think about it in the center of this beautiful trillium. Um, but actually in the center of this Venn diagram uh, that really melds a lot of our distinct goals as a county, uh, the county parks. We have ecological restoration as one petal, one leaf. Um, aesthetic landscaping is another part of it and community outreach and engagement. We have multiple guiding documents that lay out these goals very specifically as increasing biodiversity, uh, habitat enhancement and reaching a wide a uh, range of a wide range of demographics, old older folks and aging population, also underrepresented groups, getting them involved in our parks. And the nursery is really an integrated whole, a way of taking a lot of these goals and and solving them and and working on them all at the same time. So I think it's an awesome opportunity and um, that we have here uh, to continue to use this facility that we built a few years ago to its fullest capacity. Um, where to find it physically, folks don't know. So I thought I'd include a little map here. That's Lagoon Park. Um, circled up at the top, there's the, the office. Um, and then if we zoom in either even further, we have the, the Lagoon Park office. It's covered up by the, the words on the screen, but then the shade house of the nursery and the greenhouse are kind of tucked right behind it. Um, so you can't tell from this overhead what a lovely space it actually is, but I encourage you all to go down if you have time and go poke around back there. I unfortunately won't be there. This is my last day, my last hour of work actually for the season, but if you go, um, feel free to enter and uh, check out what it looks like. So it's really sweet. Um, here's a timeline, a little rough timeline of how the nursery did take shape. We used to have a, a facility at, at Lucas Valley. I, I'm not sure. I've never went there, so I don't know, but I, I heard it was somewhat ramshackle, but um, we actually moved, you know, in 2016. And when we created the Loon, Lagoon Park office, the nursery along with it, it got renovated and was sort of intermittently staffed for a number of years. And then, like Max said, pandemic really shut things down and it went into a period of dormancy. Um, so I've been really, really grateful and blessed to be at the helm for its first year back in action for this growing season. And I'm really looking forward to uh, expanding the programming and, and expanding the reach of the work that we do. Um, just to give you a sense of the transformation, here's a picture of what the shade house looked like in February at the beginning of the season. And there's what it looks like now. Um, uh, that was in August, but it's still quite full of plants at this time. Um, again, some projects that I that were uh, with, from years prior, there was some Eagle Scout um, shed that got a big facelift is now housing lots of our uh, cleaned pots that have been dutifully cleaned by our cadre of dedicated volunteers. Um, and yeah, up to up to this year, we've been 
continuing to improve the site, those shade sails have been really indispensable in creating a space that's you know usable during the height of summer for work days. Um, and then as you can see, our milkweed patch and our and our pollinator plants, this is all just like makes this place really buzz with life. Um, you can even see a little splotch. I don't know if you can get it with the granularity there, but of a monarchs. We've had tons of chrysalises and caterpillars just all over the milkweed. And you know, roping in groups like the Marin Monarch Working Group is just an awesome partnership when we think about these um, getting native plants out there. Um, yeah, and one thing that I wanted to spearhead as another part of keeping the, getting the facility um, to be really lovely and inviting was the new demonstration garden. So um, I helped, got some help from the vegetation crew to dig holes. And then of course my volunteers were a big part of this planting project and um, it's all, it's all mulched and, and graveled and looking lovely. And that's actually going to, I think, round out the space in a really nice way um, to be a demonstration of you know, the plants that we have in Marin, the different uh, ecotones and types that we have here, and as use as like a living classroom also, like these plants will be, we can collect seed right off of them and do that kind of botany lesson right in situ, but also it's a demonstration for other parks, like this kind of small scale landscape design project, I think is really a, a model and adaptable to many of our different parks, and we have a lot of data now that says that when the increase, when we increase the percentage of native cover in even provincial parks, the percentage of the um, diversity of Lepidoptera species, the diversity of birds, the abundance of bumblebees all go way up. There's just tons of benefits. So there's data out there that says that, and they don't have to be huge swaths of land. They can be somewhat small. Um, so adding to that, yesterday uh, was the installation of a little native scape at Paradise. Folks reached out to me there and said, Hey, we've got this kind of marginal little spot. Can we turn it into something beautiful? I said, yeah, we've got some plants. Let's let's figure it out. So um, folks are, I think, as the nursery kind of gets its back on its feet, this is again as a first year, uh, I think there'll be a lot more interest in projects like this. And this, again, if we put some signage on this, this is informing our visitors how, what is a native scape? What, what purpose does it serve? How can I kind of emulate that in my own garden? Um, and of course, it has all the benefits for the pollinators and the monarchs and all these things that we love so dearly. All right, I'm gonna get into a little quick uh, spiel about propagation. How do we actually do it? So this, the nursery has you know, a full 24, um, if we, in an ideal world, we have 24 month notice on these projects because we have to go out into the field and collect the seed for the site specific growing. Um, and again, that collecting seed is, is a year round task. We have Christmas berry toy on about to you know, come into fruit right now. So there's plenty to do in, throughout the year. Um, and right now is also the time we start planting out. So just to give you a, a, an idea, that's an ideal world. We can also mitigate for that by collecting seed um, beforehand, like collecting as much seed from many different places so that we have our bases covered if projects have to happen a little faster on a faster timeline. So that's something I've been dedicating myself to this year, um, seed collecting on the field. We made over 250 uh, distinct collections of different seeds from our different parks and preserves all across the county, including numerous days where I brought uh, volunteers out into the field. It's actually one of my favorite parts of this job, and I think it's actually one of the best ways we can interact with the landscape. Something sort of archaic in me, at least, uh, taps in when I am out seed collecting. It's a way of being in the landscape that's very rich um, and, and very intimate. Once seeds are collected, we bring them back, we clean them, we process them, store them, um, and then we sometimes stratify them, which means emulating a winter, you know, cold and wet conditions until those little radicals, little roots emerge. 
and then we sow them into flats and they get put into the greenhouse. So this is a shot from sort of the height of the growing season in June of this year. And all those flats are just different species of different plants from all across the county. Um, and once they have their true leaves, we pot them up. So um, this year we've had about 6, 000, over 6,000 plants potted and um, with the help of tons of volunteer hands, there's no way it would be just me. I could never do that. So it's been an awesome push and an awesome effort to get those plants in their pots and into the shade house. And now I am, I am departing this season, but the shade house is full of plants and they're about to go in the field. These rains we recently had are a really encouraging sign. So project managers are sort of on their own at this point to come in to the um, shade house and pick up their plants. And the, the, um, the outplanting in the field, there's some questions around it, right? There's multiple types of projects that we're growing for at the nursery, right? There's the open space preserves, which is often a site that's a little harder to access. You can see in this photograph of Old St. Hillary's plant out, it's down this slope um, and it's a little more remote. And then there's this other planting at Hal Brown Park, Creekside. This is a, a 10 year long plus project, this awesome native hedgerow that Kirk, our volunteer coordinator has been orchestrating. And so, you know, very accessible folks are right near their cars. It's easy to access to maintain and irrigate. Um, and so looking forward into the future, we really need to, you know, figure out what are, what are our systems gonna be like? We're gonna pour love and resources into these plants and let's have them be as successful as possible once they're out planted. Now, this also brings up the point, there's a lot of planting out is a super popular program. It's a very, you know, sort of sparkly uh, volunteer activity. Many people wanna do it, um, but not everyone is able to do it. You know, not a lot of folks can walk down that steep slope or be on their hands and knees in the dirt planting plants like that. So um, the nursery itself is actually this awesome, unique opportunity for public engagement. Not only are we public transit accessible, um, we're ADA accessible, and we have tasks for so many ability levels. We can do a lot of the work sitting down even. Um, and so this year I've, I've worked on establishing a number of partnerships, including uh, with the Marin Master Gardeners, who was pretty much knocking down my door day one saying, how can we get into the nursery? Um, but also with Autistry Studios, which is an awesome uh, job skills training program for folks with autism. And then, you know, I've been really looking, how do we expand our reach? There's a lot of opportunities here. Um, and so this is sort of as the first year figuring out what that landscape looks like and how to get folks into the nursery. Uh, Venetia Valley School's right down the road, literally 10 minute walk. So um, super lowered barrier of entry for folks in that, for kids in that program to come to and, and experience the nursery and do some projects, learn about the monarchs. Um, and then the Native Plant Society, CMPS, of course, a potential partner here, as well as the Indigenous Healing Center, because I feel like Native plants are really this key piece of reciprocity, a connection to the land and to those culturally important um, plants. So yeah, I can't say it enough. The volunteers have really been the backbone. We've had uh, 31 volunteer events. That's one event per week since mid-April. Um, so we've been really just cranking 500 plus person hours, uh, tons of pots washed, plants potted, pruned, et cetera. So just a huge thank you um, to everyone who showed up in droves. And I can't say how many folks I've gotten, had conversations with and they said, when are you going to open to the public? And I said, okay, I've got to think about this. You know, I got to strategize. How, how do we do that? And how do we get folks who are not necessarily affiliated with a specific group and but want to get involved? Uh, I should mention, we are not a typical horticultural nursery. We are a restoration nursery, which means we follow the best management practice, practices to mitigate for the risk of things like Phytophthora remorum or sudden oak death, which means we steam all of our soil, all the media is heat treated. Um, we clean off our shoes and our tools, all of that to make sure that um, we're, you know, 
it's not exacerbating problems that are already existing in the landscape. Um, and so that's uh, those are the, just kind of the reality of the restoration plant world at this point. And we uh, we train our volunteers on that and it becomes just folded into the programming. So we've had a lot of awesome projects this year, a number on Mount Burdell. We've been growing for a few projects in Tiburon as well, um, a few parks and Pacheco Valle is a cool um, uh, milkweed patch that the Rotary Club got a grant to install. So that's gonna be going in later this December. Um, they'll be planting some dormant milkweed plants. So not as satisfying perhaps, but when they re-sprout in spring, I'm sure everyone will be cheering. Um, and like I said, that Paradise Park nativescape, which um, hopefully will be one of many to come. So looking for the, to the, towards the future, as uh, John mentioned, the Redwoods, uh, Roy's Redwoods projects, really exciting. I've been collecting seed for that throughout this whole season. Um, and then a few other projects that are still taking shape. And like I said, I think as the nursery gets more uh, back online and back in people's heads, there'll be some of these projects may start coming to the fore more and more as we figure out how to best take advantage of the space. And for me, I really feel like the sky's the limit here. There's a lot of a lot of opportunities. And um, should the county choose to dedicate more resources to this uh, program, I think it can really blossom into the future. So that's about it. Thank you very much. It's more than just about it. That's not, <laughs> I have to say that your your passion and commitment are really outstanding. We, we all notice it. So really thank you, the difference that you make and it shows, I'm, I'm glad to see that in human society that people still care <laughs> about things at the level you do, so thanks. Um, okay, well that was- Mr. Chair, can I add? Yes, please. That I yes. had a chance to tour the nursery recently and it was fabulous mm -hmm. and great work. Thank you for the presentation. Cool. Yeah. I have a question. Sure. Uh, are you planting milkweeds? I, I saw something in here about milkweed and I, and of course, that's uh, monarch butterflies, right? Absolutely. So, yeah. Emphasis on that, too. We ourselves at the nursery have a really robust stand of milkweed, one of the bigger patches that most people, even the Marin Monarch Working Group said, wow, this is a very robust stand. So I've been collecting tons of seeds off of it. Um, yeah, and we're about to, um, the, the Rotary Club, like I mentioned in Pacheco Valle, donated $2,000 uh, to basically buy plants from us and 400 of those plants are milkweed. So they'll be planting those out in another month or so. Yeah, but I think as you know, as we know, the tropical milkweed's been banned in Marin, yeah. and I think it'll it'll increase. Asclepias fasciculatum doesn't actually. Yeah, I read somewhere. So yeah. You know, they have to go through a cold cycle or they won't regenerate. Right. That one, that species, you can stratify it. It doesn't need it necessarily for good germination, but um, maybe next year we'll try one batch without and one with and see what we get. It'll be good. But I planted mine without putting it in the refrigerator. Nothing came up. <laughs> next time, try the other way. Or you need some of our seed, maybe. He's the beta. <laughs> there's some data for you. <laughs> okay, great. Well, if there's any other comments, we want to put it out to the um, public. Do we have any comments from the public? Chair Malin, there are no speakers in the queue. Nope. Okay. All right. Well, once again, I can't uh, I can't thank you enough for your passion and your commitment. It's definitely shown, and I think we're all the beneficiaries. So thank you. All right. So I guess the next thing is, um, so Chris, do you want to kind of remind us we have our um, next meeting is in February the 9th. Um, and at that time, I know we'll be doing the Badawi um, 
the audit will be the prime um, topic. Correct. Uh -huh. So is there any other action items or anything else that needs to be added? Um, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, anything. I just, thanks everybody for your okay. patience sticking through. I know it's been a long day, so yeah. I appreciate it. Okay, well, once again, I really wanna welcome Robert. Thank you very much. I hope that you get engaged. There's gonna be a lot of other ways to, to participate too. So we, we would like that, you know, that this is not just we meet twice a month, I mean, twice a year, and there's a lot more opportunities. And I know that both Kevin and Chris can provide us some other ways for us to get engaged. And I think the more engaged we are as commissioners, then the more we can make decisions and make recommendations and be um, committee. committee members. That's it. Yes, yes, yes. I, I get them mixed, whatever. Oh, yes, some of you are. Yes. Um, no, well, isn't uh, Carolyn's? Correct. Huh? Not quite yet. Yes, yes. Next week, right? <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> okay, well, with that, I know that we've everyone's been here for a long time. And I once again, from the public side, I just really want to thank all the work that the staff does. I, I only wish that a 10th of the people out there in this county really could see what you guys do. And I think, you know, this passing of Measure A was a no brainer. So thank you again, really. And it, and it certainly, we're getting our money's worth. Great job, Asia, and everyone else. Thank you.